Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether you're more likely to have a heart attack if you live in a county or a state. I'm Rob Whitlin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Is war on the decline? Getting the answer to this right really matters. The US and China are, for, for better or worse, entering a period of renewed great power competition, with Taiwan as a very obvious possible trigger for war between them. And Russia is once again invading and attempting to annex territory from its neighbours, something that has a very 19th century feel to it. If war has indeed been gradually going out of fashion for the last few hundred years, then we might be able to reassure ourselves that, however troubling the current situation might feel, Fingers crossed, modern culture should continue to throw up powerful barriers to another global war like those of the past. But if we're as war-prone as we ever have been, one need only inspect the record of the 20th century or the 19th century or the 18th century to feel a suitable level of fear about what might still be in store for us in the 21st century. In 2019, political science professor Bear Braumoller wrote a book analysing this question of whether war is in long-term decline, titled Only the Dead, The Persistence of War in the Modern Age. It was in part a response to Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and other optimists who think that modern ways of reasoning and learning about the world and modern moral attitudes are gradually reducing the proclivity of states to launch wars against one another. As you'll hear, unfortunately, Bear does not agree with this at all. Given this is a live controversy with pretty smart people on either side, I approached this episode wanting to get into the weeds in order to help me figure out what I actually think about this question personally. That means that when we turn to Bear's data analysis, we really get into the nuts and bolts. Things like how exactly the number of wars is coded when there's more than two countries involved, uh, how he corrects for the fact that his graphs actually test for many different hypotheses all at once, uh, and the results that Bear got for at least four different plausible measures of warlikeness. This is the best discussion of those specifics that I'm aware of, uh, so I'm really proud of what we've managed to put together here. But all of that is on the more challenging end. So the show's producer, uh, Kieran, did a little reorganization of the conversation to put all of the most engaging and general interest topics first. So first up, we'll give a short summary of the conclusions of Bear's data analysis in Only the Dead, but we'll then press pause on that and discuss the ideas and values of the Enlightenment and whether we should naturally have expected them to reduce rates of war since 1700. We then push on to what Bear thinks is the real primary driver of rates of conflict, which political scientists call international orders. To illustrate that, uh, we'll go through two international orders from the 19th century, which I knew very little about before reading his book. Uh, that is The Concert of Europe and the Bismarckian System. It's great stuff uh, if, like me, you uh, enjoy a little bit of history. We then talk about what can be done to reduce the risk of war today, if Bear is right that the risk remains uh, troublingly, maybe shockingly high, uh, and it's the nature of international orders that do the most to determine their, the, the prevalence of war in any given period. We then loop back and dive deep into only the dead, discussing the data sets that Bear has used, uh, the specific results he got for different measures of warlikeness, uh, the power law for death in war, uh, the biggest weaknesses of his work, uh, and quite a few other things besides. I hope that section can provide a lot of clarity for people who, like me, have found it uh, very confusing how much disagreement there seems to be about this issue. All right, without further ado, I bring you Bear Braumoller. Today, I'm speaking with Bear Braumoller. Bear is a computational social scientist and a professor in the Department of Political Science at Ohio State University, where in 2020, he founded the social science research lab known as MISO, which stands for Modeling Emergent Social Order. He's been studying issues of war and peace for over 30 years, and in 2013, he published The Great Powers and the International System, and in 2019, he published Only the Dead, The Persistence of War in the Modern Age, which is the topic of today's conversation. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Bear. 
Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. I hope we're going to talk about whether war is in decline and what factors most influence its prevalence. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? (laughs) What am I working on at the moment? That's a a few things. First of all, with my research lab, which you just mentioned, I'm, I'm working on studying the relationship between international order and international conflict. And I'll talk a little bit later about why that's important, but uh, it's, it's important in part because, you know, preliminary results show that there's a big relationship between order and war, hmm. uh, but there aren't very many studies, there isn't very much theory, and so as a result, it's difficult to translate that relationship into anything approximating, you know, actionable foreign policy advice, for example. Yeah. Second... Uh, I'm I'm, uh, here now in Oslo, Norway, at the Center for Advanced Studies with a group of people who are spending the year studying the causes of escalation and warfare. I see. That's important because that was something else that came out of the book. I realized that, you know, some wars get really, really big and other wars don't. Hmm. And the extent to which wars can escalate is really shocking. Hmm. You read the book, so you know that... The we'll end of chapter that. five, I was trying to find like a you know silver lining and sort of say something optimistic. And I just sort of threw in the towel. I'm like, no, this is really bad. It sucks. It's, it's There's nothing good to say about escalation. Yeah. But one thing that a few of us have realized is it's just incredibly understudied. Hmm. We study war initiation. We don't study escalation. So there's a group of statisticians and social scientists here who are getting together for an entire year to sort of hash out our differences in some cases and uh, and try to get a better handle on why it is that some wars get really big and others don't. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it seems like, I suppose, your research project is taking all of the things that you weren't sure about at the end of Only the Dead and trying to answer them. And I, and some of them, I guess, are very difficult questions. So you need, you, need, you need a whole team and a research lab just to make some progress on it. Right, exactly. It's like a cumulative research project. You know, it's funny, I used to tell people that I study the academic equivalent of bright, shiny objects, you know, because I was kind of, I would just study whatever I was drawn to. But yeah, this is definitely a, an extension of the work that I did in, in Only the Dead. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about Only the Dead. Um, what, what prompted you to, to, to write the book? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. Um, I had done some, I wouldn't call it statistical analysis. I'd played around with the data about uh, trends in warfare before, Mm. but only in the context of teaching. Mm. When I teach classes on war, one of the things that I tell my students is, uh, you may not know this, but there are data on wars and people actually analyze data on wars and you can get some interesting findings out of them. And so, you know, during the first lecture, I would just sort of talk a little bit about what are some of the things that we can try to figure out using, uh, using data on wars. And one of them was, are we seeing a rise or decline in conflict? I mostly showed them like why that was a hard problem to answer Mm -hmm. rather than trying to come up with a comprehensive answer. But the funny thing is that just, you know, it's not the way that political scientists study war. We try to look for things that cause war or, I mean, primarily things that cause war or ways to predict war. Um, Mm -hmm. We never really look at questions like, is war on the decline? And so I never really thought of that as a very interesting exercise. But then Steven Pinker's book came out and I realized, wow, people are really interested in this question. Uh, And so I thought, well, I have to get this book. I have to take a look and see what it says. And I I got it and I started reading it and I thought, wow, I am really not satisfied with these answers. 
Um, not, right. not because of what the answers were, but, but because of the way in which he arrived at them. So this started out as a paper. I, you know, I wrote a conference paper. This is what academics do when we get annoyed about something, right? We sit down at the, you know, sit down at the computer and start typing away. Uh, so I started writing a paper. I invited uh, Steven Pinker to an author meets critics panel, which ended up being canceled. And this paper that I, so I just kept working on the paper and it kept getting longer and longer. And at one point I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with Dave McBride, who is the editor at Oxford University Press. And I said, you know, I got this paper that I'm kind of wrangling and I think it, you know, I think I might be able to turn it into a book or I might have to if I want to say everything that I want to say. And he had just read Better Angels of Our Nature. He had some of the same reactions I did. He was mm. over the moon excited about having me write this book. And he said, you know, if you, this is something that a lot of people know, academic books do not get marketed the same way that trade books do. They're just completely different streams. Do they get marketed at all? Mostly to university libraries. I see. And yeah. directly to other academics. So my first book, I naively expected to be able to walk into the local Barnes and Noble and find it on the shelf. <laughs> and I was sorely disappointed. And so I talked with Dave and he said, you know, if you think this debate deserves to be in the public sphere, we can market mm. this as a trade book. Mm. The challenge is you have to write it in plain English. You can't write it like an academic right. would. Now, this was actually a fun opportunity for me because um, before I became a political scientist, I wanted to be a writer. And I actually very much enjoy writing. And I'm painfully aware that social science has done terrible things to my writing. So this was a great opportunity to try to undo some of those things and write for a general audience. So I thought, this sounds perfect, you know. Yeah, did the, uh, did the book get as much public attention as, as, as you were hoping? I mean, it's a super hot topic. It's a controversy. It's like, as I've learned preparing for this, it's a controversy in academia, but it's a controversy in academia that has definitely spilled over into the public sphere. Right. It did and it didn't. So COVID definitely refocused people's attention. And this mm. is something that I think publishers noticed across the board is that, uh, you know, book sales were down in general. I see. On the other hand, Ukraine has sparked more interest in the topic, I think. But definitely, I mean, it's night and day in terms of compared to a regular academic publication. And right. it certainly seems to have gotten a lot of people talking, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I think you've done an excellent job explaining really quite difficult social science analysis in a way that uh, some maybe if you had no knowledge or no experience with these issues, it would be it would be heavy going. But if you do have some idea about statistical analysis or you have some pre-existing interest in social science, I think you should definitely be able to follow it. And you'll just learn an enormous amount reading the book. So if anyone does enjoy this interview, I can I can definitely recommend going away and, and, and reading it. Before we dive into the substance, um, where does the title come from? Only Only the Dead? Oh, so this is a quote from George Santayana who's a philosopher who was mainly known for his quips, I think. And one of the I things see. that he said was, only the dead have seen the end of war. I see, okay. <laughs> um, and that's, uh, it's funny, I don't know why, but in the military, that's attributed to Plato a lot. And I, I didn't want to screw it up when I, you know, when I uh, put the attribution in the book. So uh, yeah. I did some double checking and did there's no evidence that Plato ever said that. Um, but, uh, you know, the reason for the title, I mean, I, I thought Better Angels was a fantastic title. Uh, mm. you know, I really liked that part of the book. And I, I sort of wanted something with an equivalent kind of literary pedigree that would convey the opposite message. Mm. At the same time, I didn't want to be like 
as you saw going through the book, I don't want to be confrontational. I just want to try to, you know, answer this question. So mm. like there's a, <laughs> a book that came out, I think last year called Darker Angels of Our Nature by a group of historians. And um, that was a title that crossed my mind and I just let it cross. I thought, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. this, is much, <laughs> this is much more about the question of whether war is in decline than it is about, about Stephen Pinker per se. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it might seem like we're we're picking on um, Stephen Pinker a little bit as as this goes on, or focusing on on him a little bit. Uh, but I suppose that's the consequences of being enormously successful and uh, getting your book out and your, and your message out so much is uh, you become the standard bearer, I suppose, for a set of views that are actually pretty mainstream already. Okay, so the many findings in the book are presented, as I was saying, with kind of substantial complexity and subtlety, and it's going to take a while to explain, I suppose, many of your concerns with past research, then lay out your methodology, and then work through the various different tests and specifications that you provide us with. But so the audience can't miss it, is it possible to summarize in a few minutes the key bottom lines that you really wanted people who read the book to remember and come away with? Yeah, I wish there was just sort of one bottom line. There are a few. The first one, I think, is that there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical about the data and arguments that have been presented in favor of the decline of war argument. And this was mm. a big part of my frustration in reading Better Angels in particular. You know, I was looking forward to these nuggets of data and, uh, you know, the sort of statistical tests and so on and so forth. And I just didn't, didn't see that. Mm. Some, some other scholars have accused Pinker of kind of cherry picking the data. And I, I didn't do that in the book. But I've read that mm. criticism, and I don't think it's completely unfair. Just for one example, he provided a graph of war in decline from a conference paper mm. that never got published. And I dug up the mm. conference paper, and it was one of six graphs, and it was the only one that showed war in decline. <laughs> you know, right? And uh, so yeah, it does, doesn't seem fully even-handed. Yeah, that's one issue. Another is that the analysis of the data is really lacking. And this is something that Nassim Taleb has point that he's made often and at length. In particular, there are no actual tests of the argument in the sense of like a formal statistical test that would help you distinguish signal from noise, right? I mean, that's what statistical yeah, tests right. do. So, you know, it looks a lot more impressive, I think, to people who don't do data analytics than it actually is to the people who do. That's one bottom line. Right. Okay. Yeah, what, what are some other key messages? The second bottom line, I think, is that when you do test the argument that war is in decline, it's really hard to find support for it. Hmm. And I, I was clear about this in the book. Like, I wanted Pinker to be right. My hope was that I was going to find trends that were going to support the argument. But I looked hmm. at three different meanings of the phrase decline of war, and I only found a decline in one of them, and that was only at the end of the Cold War. Hmm. Uh, mostly... There's just been no change over the past couple hundred years. And you could even argue that there'd been some evidence of increase in warfare prior to the end of the Cold War. So that's number two. I guess the key scary finding is just that there's not really ever any evidence that would make us feel confident that the threat that we face from war today is materially less than the threat that people have faced at many other times through history. Correct. Times in which enormous horrific wars broke out and war was one of the most regularly destructive uh, forces out there. Correct. So we, we just shouldn't be sanguine about the issue, right. uh, is, is I suppose the bottom line. Yeah. And what's another key conclusion? I think the third bottom line is that there is some hope. I don't mean it to be an entirely negative conclusion that, as you mentioned, patterns of international order, I think, are much better predictors of variation in international conflict than human progress over time. 
you don't see a ton of variation in conflict across the entire system over time. You do see variation across groups of states and specifically across and within international orders like the liberal international order, the Soviet communist order, the concert of Europe and so on. So I think that in some ways I kind of do agree with people who argue that we've made progress. I think we've created something really impressive. Michael Howard wrote a book about international order where he referred to it as the invention of peace. Hmm. So I think there is some hope if we can get a better handle on international order. The thing is, we don't really know how to use it. You know, we don't have a very good sense of how to optimize configurations of international order to create as much peace as possible. Fantastic. Okay, so let's park the data analysis in Only the Dead for now. Uh, listeners can rest assured that we're going to come back and discuss that in plenty of detail in an hour or so. Uh, has, I have a lot of questions about it. Uh, but for now, let's push on to a different issue that you cover in the book, which is the age of enlightenment uh, and, and, and reason, uh, pacifist values and humanism and so on, uh, and what impact we might expect all of that to have had. I'm really interested in this issue because I think I had probably had a strong preconception that the Enlightenment and all of the intellectual advances that stemmed from that over the last 250 years, that that probably was pushing us towards a more reasonable world in which a conflict was less likely. That was certainly would have been my assumption kind of coming in. And I think over, I've changed my mind on that over, over the last few years, or at least I view it now as like a lot less clear. Uh, and I feel like I should actually have, I, I had all of the knowledge necessary, I think, to realize that that was a much less clear claim than, 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 than what I thought it was. So there are ways in which, uh, you, know, uh, you know, intellectual changes in the 17th and 18th century uh, might push us towards peace, but there are also ways in which they might not, and in fact did not. Can you lay out uh, some of those? Sure. The word enlightenment just has such positive connotations. It's, yeah. it's hard to think, you know, it's just like... I became uh, enlightened and then went to war, yeah. Yeah, and so you, you tend to attribute all good things, uh, you know, that came after the enlightenment to some, some degree of enlightenment. But you're exactly right that the enlightenment gave rise to a lot of ideas. And some of those ideas made war more acceptable for new reasons that hadn't existed before. Yeah. Um, Herder and nationalism, for example, Hegel and Marx on, on the value of a strong state, justifications for uprising against monarchies, you know, the invention of uh, wars for peace in the, in the Greek civil war, right? Interventions mm-hmm. in order to stop war. Like, you know, all of these are grounded in very firmly in enlightenment ideas. You know, yeah. Everyone loves to talk about Immanuel Kant, but Kant wasn't the whole Enlightenment. So that's one That's one general point. The other one is Enlightenment ideas, even when they have been sort of progressive and, and positive, have given rise to very illiberal reactions on the part of people who were kind of dissatisfied with modernity. Mm. The recent waves of populist movements, for example, is a good, uh, good illustration of that. Right? These are fundamentally you know, nationalistic, illiberal movements. Hmm. So there are a couple of ways in which, the you know, you, you can't really draw a straight arrow from the Enlightenment to peace. Yeah, right. So, yeah, this is a big, big, big shift in my thinking here. So when I was thinking about, like, you know, what is the Enlightenment? Like, what is it fair to say is a consequence uh, of, of the Enlightenment? It, it's kind of unclear. It's obviously a vague, vague concept. It's a difficult, undefined question. You definitely see sort of a much greater... Now, again, the caveat is I'm not a not an Enlightenment specialist, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. But mm. um, but you know, you, you see much more of a reliance, a fundamental reliance on reason as a vector to truth, 
yeah. than um, revelation, right? Or uh, faith, right? And it's just, it's a fundamental reorientation of society. So it had tremendous, uh, you know, just incredibly pervasive impact, more in spread. There were actually sort of a variety of different enlightenments in different places at different times. But the overall trend was more toward a focus on better ways to truth, mm. right? And that, you know, you see that in uh, the rise of universities, the rise of science, or, you know, all sorts of all sorts of different ways. But um, reason can lead you to some pretty dark places too. <laughs> yes, and even if it's leading you in a good direction in the long term, it could be an extremely bloody path that uh, to, to to get there. Yes, um, arguably. Right. So, yeah, if you construe the enlightenment that broadly that it's a turn towards reasoned argument as a way of assessing ideas and trying to arrive at truth it's almost easier to say you know what in the present world isn't influenced or isn't caused by the enlightenment than to, than to say what is right. so obviously we've got if, if anything is caused by the enlightenment surely the french revolution qualifies french revolution right. was not exactly super peaceful then i guess you've got uh, the uh, anti-colonial wars of various wars of independence fought by various different groups, the United States, then Latin America, uh, Haiti, then, then many other countries. Got a real, not exactly super peaceful. Then you've got communism. Okay, Communism, definitely, it, it, the revolutions were deadly. The wars fought uh, by communist states to foster communism elsewhere, very deadly. Communism, good or bad, <laughs> it was not necessarily a peaceful process. You've right. got all of the anti-monarchist wars, which was a you know, massive ongoing turmoil in, in the 19th century, deciding how countries should be governed. Again, maybe anti-monarchism was good, but it caused a lot of wars. Arguably, the Enlightenment justified a whole lot of colonialism that uh, otherwise people might not have been interested in. Of course, countries were engaged in, in colonialism for other reasons before, but the Enlightenment provided new possible intellectual ammunition that people could use to dominate other people claiming that they're doing the right thing uh, yes. and using, using, using reasons supposedly to justify that. Then plausibly, you could say, well, all of the new weapons that we invented, maybe that's caused by the Enlightenment in a sense, because science has, I, a, I, I, just as it's enabled medicine, it's also enabled nuclear weapons. Okay, then you've got nationalism. Now, we, we're already had nationalism, but there's like kind of new flavors, new styles of nationalism that uh, justify it on kinds of enlightenment grounds. I think maybe the one thing you could say, it's like, it is a stretch to say, I think that fascism or Nazism is a kind of enlightenment. It's like, of all of the modern ideas, it's one of the least enlightenment influence, but at least it's a reaction against yes. <laughs> enlightenment ideas, right. you could say. So Very it's much. still, in a sense, a, a broader a broader consequence. So, wow, the enlightenment is just so, it, it's caused so much that to say that it has in general fostered pacifism and peace. Um, I, you know, I haven't even mentioned, of course, now people have all kinds of ideas about humanitarian interventions and going to wars in order to protect people, in order to promote liberalism, in order to promote ideas that they think are good. That, you know, if you, if you put that to someone in 1400, that they should go to war overseas in order to promote liberalism or in order to protect people from being oppressed by their own government, that would have been re uh, regarded as, as, as ludicrous. Right. Okay. So that's a very long rant. But suffice it to say, it's a complicated picture. I think maybe the claim that you could make that is more plausible is that liberalism like democratic liberalism maybe you can make a stronger case i think that that has tended towards pacifism and anti-violence but again it's a it's a more it's a complicated it's a complicated picture uh even even there although i might rate my chances more at making that case yeah and you know it also gets uh gets more complicated when you look into the relationship between parts and wholes right mm. so Certainly, there's, there have been arguments that democracy is liberal democracy. It, democracy is conducive to peace. One of the things that I find in a later chapter is that the Soviet communist order was also relatively peaceful, you know, under threat of force. But you know, so it was a not exactly 
peace in the fullest sense, but it was the absence of conflict, mm-hmm. right? And certainly the way that Lenin and Marx initially envisioned a communist state, peace would have been a big part of the goal, mm-hmm. right? Lenin in particular argued that the Enlightenment led to liberalism, which led to capitalism, which led to imperialism, which was a major driver of war, and the communism mm-hmm. was the solution to that, right? And yeah. you could make those arguments, but it turns out when you put capitalism and communism in the same international system, that is not a recipe for peace. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's, it's complicated in many ways. And that's one of the reasons, you know, in the book I discuss the Enlightenment a little bit. I, I don't say much more than that it's a lot more complicated than this. I can't even, yeah. it, you gave a fantastic sort of recitation of all the different kinds of things that have followed from the Enlightenment. And I thought about how do you aggregate that into a big, you know, overall plus or minus? I don't know. I have no idea. But it's way, way more complicated than just we need more enlightenment. Yeah. You know, we got to double down on the enlightenment. On everything that came out of the enlightenment? I don't think you want to do that, you know? Uh, yeah, I want, to, I want to make that joke. Has the Enlightenment led to peace? It's too soon to tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like part of I, I haven't followed really closely this pro-Enlightenment anti or, or like um, uncertain about the Enlightenment discourse. I imagine that a lot of what's going on is people talking past one another. The Enlightenment is a very broad term. People mean different things. One group, the pro-Enlightenment group, is probably talking about a particular single strain of thought or a class of thought that has emerged from the Enlightenment among many others and arguing that that style of reasoning leads to leads to peace. And probably there they, they have a strong case, whereas the people who are against it are saying, what about all these other things? What about, right. Yeah, what about uh, colonialism and the reaction against that? What about communism and all of the wars that resulted from that? I, if, you consider, if, if you consider it very broadly, then it's almost, an, <laughs> the, the effect is so broad, it's, uh, the question starts to seem almost silly in a way. But there is sort of a, a cottage industry in, in kind of, big think history books and people arguing that modernity is good and modernity is bad, you know, Mm. and, and, uh, you know, we really were happier when we were hunter gatherers and so on and so forth. So Mm. it's one of those things that people love to weigh in on. I envy them the ability to think broadly enough to, to put all those pieces together and come (laughs) to an aggregate judgment. Yeah. Do you have a take on democratic peace theory? I guess this idea that democracies tend to be very hesitant to get into armed conflict with uh, another, you know, clear democracy. Yes, a fairly complicated one. I, mean, I, I couldn't. There, well, first of all, there was no way that I could, you know, as a scholar of international relations, mm-hmm. live through the 1990s and not have an opinion about the democratic peace. Like we killed more <laughs> trees with studies about the democratic peace in the 1990s than than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There's strong evidence for it. There's a fair amount of evidence that it's strongest in the post-World War II period. Uh, And there just weren't that many democracies before World War I, and they were pretty far apart. So you can see why it would be a little, you know, a little more difficult to say. But the post-World War II period is also the period when there was an ideological split with democracies on one side and communist states Mm. on the other. So they were all within the same order. So maybe that explains it rather than democracy per se. Exactly. And uh, Kant talked about what Bruce Russell has called the Kantian triad, which is uh, trade, shared institutions, for example, the international order, and democracy. Mm. And there's a neat piece by one of my colleagues at OSU, Skylar Cranmer, along with two co-authors, uh, Elizabeth Meninga and Peter Mucha and PNAS in 2015. These folks are network folks, and they do a good job of, mm. like I said, dealing with the characteristics of the data. And they argue that you know the Kantian triad as a whole it does uh, 
result in a reduction of conflict. Sorry, so what's the, what's the Kantian triad? Sorry, trade, institutions, and democracy. Sort of those, those three things. Yeah. And uh, they argue that those three things do produce peace, but that of the three, democracy matters least, which is kind of an interesting finding. So, you know, my take, you know, the upshot is that historically democracy is embedded in larger historical structures, right? Like networks mm. of trade and international order. And it's hard to yeah. divide up the impact of different variables in that sort of complex of things. Because they all tend to come together. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not even clear that you should try to divide them up. Because they cause one another. Yeah, exactly. That they're very interrelated and, and as a as a complex, as a structure, mm. we can say that they have this impact. And you can argue about what parts of it are most important, but there does seem to be a there there. Yeah. That said, um, something that people often miss is that the concert of Europe was a fundamentally conservative institution, right? This was a bunch of monarchs who decided that what they wanted to do, they had seen the French revolution. They had seen liberty, equality, and brotherhood, and they wanted to stamp it out. (laughs) Forget it. We don't want any more of that. So that was a fundamentally anti-democratic international order. Hmm. And it maintained peace for better part of 50 years. Yeah. I didn't know what the concept of Europe was until I read this book. So we're going to, we're going to get to that in a minute and, uh, and, and, and explain what it is in a bit more detail. Yeah. I can't remember if you discussed this in the book, but I think a lot of people have the perception that religion is a key driver of war through history and, and maybe still today. And perhaps that's one thing that has influenced a lot of people to think that a more secular modern world ought to be more peaceful. And that's one channel by which the Enlightenment has reduced war. Yeah. Do you have any reaction to that idea? Not a big one. Again, this is one of those areas that I'm not, you know, I can't claim to have studied this systematically and I don't want to run roughshod over the findings of people who actually have. But I can say at a broad level, you know, that religion at other times has been a driver of peace, right? Hmm. I just mentioned the Concert of Europe, which was a collection of when the major powers in Europe got together, five major powers, and decided that they were going to cooperate um, to prevent revolution. Tsar Alexander of Russia very much saw this as a Christian organization. He referred to it as the Holy Alliance. And uh, there are all sorts of stories about the other people of the conferences sort of snickering behind his back and saying, sure, Alex, that's fine. That's, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever you say. Whatever floats your boat, just sign the paper, you know. But to him, sort of Christian unity was mm. the motivation behind the Holy Alliance, which mm. sort of, you know, merged into the, the concept of Europe or became the concept of Europe. And that was, you know, in part because if you were a believer in Christianity, you were a believer in the divine right of kings. Mm. And the divine right of kings is what the French Revolution was about. All the past uh, mm. Yeah. So, you know, the, the concept of Europe was a repressive institution. It was designed to sort of roll back the clock and then maintain the status quo. Mm. But it was, in some part, religious reasoning. And it maintained peace for quite some time. So, so it's, it's it's a complicated thing to answer. Yeah. It's a complicated picture. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you can imagine both religion inspiring war between countries that have different religious views and also promoting peace between countries that are neighbors that have common religious values. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, so my substantially less informed opinion still is just I kind of scan through a list of all of the wars that I'm aware of in my mind. And I think how mm-hmm. many of these was religion the key issue? Now, obviously, there was periods in history where religion was uh a key right. issue for in, in in most wars, you know, kind of the wars resulting from right. the from the Reformation and so on. Like yes. Very, very clear that right. religious issues were very central there. 
But in the modern era, there's a lot of wars fought over issues that don't really seem to be about religion or where religion is mentioned, but it seems like kind of that's a cover for other issues, at least arguably. There's a a wonderful book by uh, Calabi Holstey written years ago. And he, I I reproduced one of his, uh, a graph from, from his findings where it shows sort of trends over time and, you know, religious wars are big in this period and smaller in this period and, Mm. you know, nationalist wars are small in this period and rise up in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of ebb and flow is really fascinating. Yeah. Now we don't fight over religion. We fight over the appropriate way to govern a country, (laughs) the appropriate system of international order. Yeah. Or uh, I don't know if you've read a book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg. No, I I haven't. haven't haven't heard Um, of it actually. Yeah. Really neat, uh, neat book about the, um, the discovery of the East Indies and the race to obtain as much nutmeg as possible. Mm. And there were actually wars fought over, uh, you know, over, yeah. over control nutmeg of nutmeg, support. which uh, they believed at the time cured the plague. Right. Wow. So, yeah, people fight over nutmeg. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things people fight over. Whoever controls the spice. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pushing on, yeah. So the the last third of the book is about international orders, which I think you think comes out of the data as being one of the key. Oh, so changes in international orders seem to be one of the key drivers, the most plausible key driver of changes in international rates of of conflict, of weights of roaring initiation and escalation. Right now, international orders it's a, it's a kind of complex concept that different people define a bit differently. But you put it as a multilateral security regime that involves one or more major powers and that is legitimized by a set of principles that are potentially universal uh, in scope. You know, we, could, we, we, could, we could stay on the abstract level, but I think it might be more useful just to talk about uh, what, what are some different examples of international orders that people might be familiar with and, and kind of why do they qualify as international orders? Right. So uh, the concept of Europe, which I've now been talking about for three answers in a row, I think, is, uh, <laughs> is is a great example because it involved multiple great powers and the principles involved were taken to be universal. And they thought they had a, you know, a fundamental understanding of the best way to govern the international system, right? Mm. So that's a clear example. The Bismarckian system in Europe in the 1870s and 1880s, slightly less clear example because Bismarck clearly believed that he had a, a good idea for how to manage Europe and how to manage Germany's security. It's a little more arguable as to whether you could see that as potentially universal in scope, but, you know, I err on the side of bringing it in just to see what the results look like. What about some ones that people might have more context on? I'm thinking, so what was the international order during during the Cold War? So uh, I think there were a few orders, and I think they were sort of nested within each other. So the, mm-hmm. the Western liberal order, or the liberal international order, was what we think of as kind of the, the West during the during the Cold War. The Soviet communist order is what we think of as the East. But I also think that there were a couple of other uh, orders, like the UN system as sort of an overarching international mm-hmm. order that's less binding, in a sense, and less, uh, I don't want to say less formalized, it's extremely formalized, but mm-hmm. but less deep in a, in a security sense. Less strong, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, I mean, at the beginning, the great powers gave themselves a free pass by giving themselves a veto in the Security Council. So, you know, in that sense, it's a, it's a limited international order. But also, I think, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a, an order between the superpowers, right, where they, where they tried very hard to sort of improve their ability to predict one another's behavior, right? Yeah. 
And uh, I don't talk about that order in the book. It's more of a, this is my hunch kind of thing than, you know, that I've got mm. uh, concrete data or historians accounts to, to back it up. But it does strike yeah. me that if you take a look at the conflict management that the great powers engaged in, you could say that there was kind of a major, you know, a nascent major power order there. Yeah. That's what I mean by international order. So you're right. It's a sort of, if it's a broad concept. Yeah. So you talk about how there's these different eras uh, of, of international order. And I suppose you could say after the Cold War, there was a new, there was a kind of a new one. And arguably, I suppose we're entering into a new international order with with China being being more assertive and kind of re- refusing to be part, kind of constrained by the order that, that predominated in, in the year 2000, for example. I guess, are there different classes? What, you know, if you had to list, you know, here are the four different kinds of international order, uh, what, what, what would they be? Or, or is that the wrong way to think about it? No, it's fine. It's, uh, I mean, very broadly, I think the categorization that makes the most sense to me is there are orders that are negotiated. And so like the liberal international order would be a good example of a, of a, a negotiated order among, among countries. There are orders that Im- are imposed, like, like empires, right, where the, the subsidiary states don't really have a choice or the choice that they're given is so unpalatable that they effectively don't have a choice. Yeah. And then there's a third category that um, libertarians are particularly fond of, the spontaneous order, right? where interactions just spontaneously give rise to you know, mutual expectations and, and rules of the road. So in a very broad sense, I think you can break orders down into those types. Yeah. And is it fair to say, basically, the story with international orders is that a block of countries, once they've established an international order, internally, they tend to have substantially lower rates of violent conflict. Mm-hmm. However, if you have more than one block of inter- like more than one international order on the scene at any one point in time, then their tendency to fight with one another is pretty substantial. Uh, and so, so it's kind of a balancing, like whether they're good or bad, it was kind of a balancing between these two things that internally, they're relatively peaceful and externally, uh, they can be quite aggressive. Right. Exactly. I guess so. So that doesn't comment on the anarchy situation or the situation where there is no is no order. How does that perform? Well, anarchy is sort of, in a way, kind of the baseline condition, right? And it tends to be more. I mean, certainly more conflictual than life under international orders, and generally more conflictual than relationships across orders as well. Really? So, okay. So it's really kind say, of the worst it, case. So it's a really interesting question. So I, I wrote this book, and what I observed was higher rates of conflict initiation across international orders. And I just sort of assumed, you know, what happens is you get two different groups forming, and once you have sort of in-group affect, you get a cross-group conflict. Hmm. Well, it turns out that, you know, there's a whole psych literature on this, and that, that doesn't generally happen. Hmm. In-group affect doesn't automatically lead to out-group conflict. And uh, so my, my lab and I came up with a, a model of how it is that hierarchy and hierarchical order and international war are related to each other. And we also found in that model that just the formation of multiple hierarchies in and of itself doesn't cause an increase in conflict between them. Hmm. So um, it's a really interesting puzzle. Why does you see increased rates of conflict initiation. And I've got a couple of answers that are potentially worth considering. One is that multiple international orders don't cause increased levels of conflict. Increased levels of conflict cause multiple international orders. I see. So the world becomes more dangerous 
And as a response to that danger, you see international orders form, mm. which is actually a very good, uh, maps very well to the trajectory of the Western liberal order and the Soviet communist order after World right. War II. I mean, these are, mm. you know, they fought on the same side and only gradually did, they, did each realize that the other was a threat. And as that perception of threat increased, you know, more and more, there was a, an increasing tendency to try to form orders to kind of counteract it. So that may be one reason that you see more conflict across multiple orders, that order, mm. that conflict creates it's, it's order. reverse causation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, suppose, <laughs> I mean, all of this is, I guess, so. yeah, the technical term is all of these things are endogenous. So it's extremely yes. hard to do causal attribution <laughs> because everything is causing everything else or, or plausibly is. Well, that, that's why theory is really important, mm. right? Because um, unless you have a concrete theory of how these things happen, it's very easy to convince yourself that kind of shirt sleeve calculations or, you know, broad reasoning will lead you to the right answer. Mm. But, um, you know, we actually constructed a formal computational model to simulate international systems. And, you know, we watched how this model, we, we fed it a set of premises um, and we watched how the model behaved. And we came away saying, okay, so why is there this conflict? <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. we do see it happening, but we see it happening for exactly the opposite reason that we had thought. Another possibility is that orders tend to increase ideological polarization, right? Like when you say, okay, you can become a member of NATO, but you have to be a liberal democracy, right? What that effectively does is it increases, you know, it, it, um, it means that the process of forming an international order increases tensions between the member states and states outside the order, right? Because it increases the sort of ideological differences between the two that, that can lead to war. So yeah. one possibility is that this kind of process of making states more democratic or more communist draws them more into conflict with one another than they otherwise would have been. So there are a couple of yes. possibilities for what this mechanism is, but we know surprisingly little, actually. And mm. that's one of the mm. one of the reasons that we're kind of doing this work is to try to straighten this out. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah, as I learned reading, I mean, I learned so much from this uh, last third of the book because, as it turns out, I mean, I know I know a bit about a decent number of different times in history, but it turned out the 19th century history uh, was much was a much greater gap in my mind than than what than what I had uh, appreciated. And I do wonder. I, I feel like. It's very natural. You know, I, like most people, I suppose, when I've looked into history, I've looked into World War II, then maybe the Cold War, then maybe World War One, then maybe you think about the modern era. Um, but where, you know, at what point do you start studying the Bismarckian system? That that, that seems like it's uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps more advanced than an amateur like like me might typically get into. But I think it really would be helpful for people who are commenting on international relations, even in an amateur capacity like me, to have a broader reference class, a, a broader set of knowledge of different eras. And how countries got together in in those times, because having a tiny data set of only four eras, <laughs> you've never yeah, thought yeah, of it, right, right. Uh, especially four eras where kind of the issues were often quite similar and carried carried over between them, just means that you know very little, <laughs> and you can plausibly just say things that would be very silly to someone who does understand you know, the eighteenth century and nineteenth century, because it'd be great counterexamples to what you're saying. Right, and actually, this is a general problem in studying international orders. There just haven't mm. been very many of them. Right. Mm. So this is one of the things that I love about my research lab. The other members are graduate students and, you know, their dissertations, you'll be seeing them as books before too long, I, I hope. And I think they're going to be really interesting, but mm. they're doing just 
incredible things comparing like, you know, the Syrian empire to the Ottoman empire, or, you know, in another case, comparing the concert of Europe with, you know, the formation of the United States and sort of saying, why is it that you get a unified state in the United States, but you don't get a United States of Europe in 1815, right? Yeah. And they're incredibly creative about how to come up with these comparisons and incredibly fearless when it comes to diving into the literature on these, uh, you know, on these places. So it is a problem that we have a limited, even if you go into the 19th century, like you still have a pretty limited number of examples. Yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with these smart, you know, intellectually adventuresome people who are teaching me a lot about, you know, the Ming empire. And so it's really terrific. There's one thing you can say about history is that there's a lot of it. I think I think we need yes. to stop producing it until we can, you know, properly <laughs> properly deal with the history we already have. Just have a pause. Yeah. <laughs> um, the era that I was uh, most keen to, to to share a little bit with, with the audience is the, is this concert of Europe period, uh, yeah. where I guess that there was a kind of a very clear order that you've already discussed a little bit. I suppose to to do a bit of setup here. In the late 18th century, you've got the, the French Revolution, a lot of new uh, innovative <laughs> and controversial ideas are going around. Then you have the Napoleonic Wars from around, was it 1800 to, to 1815? Incredibly bloody period. You know, <laughs> Napoleon never saw a country he, he didn't want to invade. <laughs> uh, so there's just been um, constant bloodshed. Finally, in 1815 or so, they, they managed to get rid of Napoleon. And they're like, all right, <laughs> no more of this. Uh, yeah, so, so talk about the agreement that the European powers are put together at that point. So the, one of the reasons that Napoleon was so dangerous is that he kept running around Europe and saying, you, Poles, you're Poles, be Poles, be independent. You know, you, Italians, you're Italians. <laughs> you know, they say, yes, we're Italians, and they rise up. So he became an enormous pain for these multi-ethnic empires that existed at the time. And... Uh, if there was one thing that they could agree on at the end of the Napoleonic Wars is that they, they were done with that. They, they'd have an, had enough of this whole sort of nationalist uprising thing. Hmm. And so they came together at the Congress of Vienna. And it's sort of interesting. There was a lot of negotiation. There was a lot of discussion. There were sort of um, agreements made about the idea that they would work together to govern the international, the European system, at least, hmm. and ensure that it would remain conservative and monarchical. Even the UK, right, was part yeah. of this. Although Castlereagh was kind of out on the limb, he was. Um, <laughs> foreign ministers were not monitored with the same frequency that they <laughs> that they are today, and he did a bit of freelancing. Yeah. So there was this uh, there was this agreement, and partly because. People knew that it wasn't going to pass muster in, in Britain. It wasn't formalized, mm. right? And as a matter of fact, Castlereagh had to write a very sort of strained paper in 1820, sort of, you know, saying, as you know, we will not be a part of any, you know, attempt to sort of, you know, suppress democracy on the continent, wink, wink. Mm. So the UK, you know, keeping the UK in was a bit of a challenge. But interestingly, it was very thinly institutionalized, mm. right? They met at a few congresses to discuss problems as they arose, but there was no, like, central body. There was no, like, you know, UN mm. building that they would go to and meet on a regular basis. It was just a very ad hoc sort of thing. So um, I'm not, you know, I'm not surprised that people haven't come across it uh, because it was very... Uh, not it was conspicuous. Very, yeah. Now, it started after 
the Napoleonic Wars, as you mentioned. Interestingly enough, because it was so thinly institutionalized, it's sort of hard to say exactly when it ended. Mm, yeah. You know, it just kind of slowly faded away. But if you could point to one end point, I think it would be the Crimean War in the 1850s. Yeah. But, uh, but in that period, it was remarkably successful. In the book, actually, you say, I think, yeah, yeah, the four decades following the Napoleonic Wars were by a significant margin the most peaceful period on record in Europe. Is that even true considering the, uh, you know, uh, 1990 to 2020 period? Sure. I mean, there was the war in Yugoslavia. There were, right. I mean, there, you know. So, yeah, now, now in part it was peaceful because uh, anytime there was a threat to the peace, the great powers intervened. Hmm. You know, sometimes bloodlessly, sometimes not. But uh, I think after after a few interventions, people tended to get the message. Yeah, right. Okay. So it was like active peacekeeping, uh, but, right. but it was yeah. effective. Uh, w- w- why did it break down? Uh, largely because um, Russia, the UK, and France, having managed successfully to govern the international system for decades stumbled into a war that none of them actually really wanted in the Crimea. It was kind of, it's one of those wars where people are like, what were they doing? <laughs> what were they yeah, thinking? Right, exactly. And it, it, it often, I think, wasn't uh, entirely <laughs> entirely clear to them. Mm. But, uh, it, but it just made it very clear that you mm. could no longer take consensus among the great powers for granted. Right. And okay. once that happens, you have... Russia saying, well, I do have some territorial ambitions that I'd like to realize, actually. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, if, yeah. and if nobody's watching, you know, if, yeah. if mom and dad are no longer punishing us for, for territorial aggrandizement, I have a few territories that I'd like to pick up. Yeah, right. I guess, yeah, it might seem a, a little bit odd to talk about this as a, a global international order. And I guess obviously it wasn't, but I suppose it's, no, no. It, it's, it slightly is a confined set because those major powers in Europe didn't face external threats, really. So they could maintain peace between one another. They're, from their point of view, then there was uh, no, no wars being fought against there or no wars that they weren't choosing. Right. Most orders are regional, right? I mean, even the liberal international order is a regional international order. So, yeah. So what can we learn from that period that could possibly be relevant today? It's an idiosyncratic period. It's hard. And, and, you know, most of these countries were ruled by individual people. So it's difficult or small numbers of people at, at, uh, at worst. Hmm. So it's kind of difficult to apply the lessons. But we can say, I think, that it showed us that major powers can prioritize international peace over domestic ideology. Hmm. Right. I mean, there were there were substantial differences in, and growing differences in domestic ideology over this period. Hmm. But um, for a time, at least, they managed to subsume those differences and actually pursue joint interests in, in peace. I see. The other thing is Michael Howard, Sir Michael Howard, you've got to give him his due, refers to the concert of Europe as the invention of peace. And his argument, and I'm not going to argue with that, historian of his caliber, is that this was the first international order in which the maintenance of peace was an explicit objective. Mm. And so in that way, it's sort of a watershed event in the international system. And I suppose, was it unusual to have a treaty between so many different major powers where they kind of all agreed to try to avoid fighting one another? This wasn't typical. Yes, that's right. As a matter of fact, there was a discussion after the end of the Cold War about the possibility of like a major power concert of some mm. sort. Like that idea was floated a couple of times. Yeah. And um, the problem was, I think a lot of people sort of 
looked at the Western liberal order or the liberal international order, as they were calling it by that point, mm. and said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I see. Yeah. Okay. Possibly we could live to regret <laughs> that, that, that decision. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we could. Yeah. Do you think that the main reason for, you know, people taking this, this novel approach was just that they were so scarred by the Napoleonic Wars that they were willing temporarily, and I suppose also internal revolutions within lots of countries, that they were willing to set aside <laughs> their territorial ambitions and their interest in invading one another and say, well, <laughs> we'll leave that for another day uh, or maybe, maybe never, and let's just uh, focus on not getting overthrown. <laughs> right. Yes. And I think in part that's wrapped up in the kind of theories of war mm. that they had in mind. So, you know, the, the major power conflicts that had occurred previously had been certainly relative to the Napoleonic Wars, had often been limited in scale. They involved professional armies. The Napoleonic Wars were really a revolution in warfare. And I think there was an uncommon unity. And they affected all, I mean, uh, you know, the, just about all the powers were affected in one way or another. And so there was a, an uncommon degree of, leaders being on the same page about what the problem was, which was revolution, and how big the problem was, which was, mm. you know, revolution anywhere threatens the peace everywhere. Yeah. If you've just had a big war, you may overcompensate and, you know, think that mm. wars are going to pop up all over the place. This yeah. is kind of, a, you know, international order, I think, benefits from that perception. That's one of the reasons you see international orders form after large wars, is people say, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact that this order was able to form despite everybody not quite being on the same page about principles of international governance is kind of inspiring. And I think the historians who wrote about, you know, do we need a new concert saw that as inspiring as well. Later on in the 19th century, I guess possibly going into the early 20th century, uh, Europe followed a different system that was also reasonably peaceful uh, called the Bismarckian system. Mm-hmm. What, what were the characteristics of, of that one? Oh, Bismarck was a really special case. Um, he designed a system of alliances, well, actually three systems of alliances in order to deter conflict. And he did this because conflict would almost inevitably involve Germany. Mm-hmm. Germany had just won a series of wars, declared itself a unified German state. And in the process, it had made basically a permanent enemy out of France. Mm. So anybody who attacked Germany from the east could count on France attacking from the West. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Bismarck had very good reasons for, you know, becoming a, a man of peace yeah. <laughs> in 1871. So yeah. he basically used alliances to tie up the other great powers and prevent coalitions from forming, in particular coalitions involving France. And he did this, like I said, in three different clusters of alliances over the course of about 20 years. And mm. most statesmen, I think, Certainly not his successors couldn't manage that balancing act. I see. So, so the, the idea was that he would ensure that there was never a coalition or an alliance large enough that it would think that it was a good idea to launch a war because, of, because they would be able to win and gain territory. So Correct. things would always be sufficiently finely balanced that, that everyone would be too nervous to actually start a war. Yes. Okay. Do you think he got lucky? That's a great question. It's very common to attribute the Bismarckian system to sheer diplomatic genius. Hmm. And I think, I don't think I've seen a substantial movement away from that interpretation, although this isn't, I'm not exactly steeped in the literature on Bismarck. Yeah. But uh, he may have been fortunate in that 
the countries that were closest to him for the most part had just lost to Germany. Mm. Uh, so, so, so they sense, also they saw the virtues of peace. Exactly. But the, the big caveat to that is France really wanted to retake, you know, the territory that it had lost. Okay, is, is there any potential relevance to us today from, from that system? It seems like it's a little bit more of an anarchic one than perhaps what we have right now. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, you can balance powers off against one another and keep them keep them quiet that way. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. The um, people who refer to themselves as political realists, people, people like Henry Kissinger, have been... Um, have been aspiring to be Bismarck for <laughs> for generations. So there are definitely people around in the foreign policy establishment mm. who have ideas about how it is that you can align politics in such a way as to reduce peace. Now, yeah. often it's impractical, right? I'll, I'll give you an example. Henry Kissinger argued that the best way to avoid war with uh, Ukraine and Russia was for Ukraine to declare neutrality. Uh, he's probably right. I mean, that that probably would have worked, but you know, the Ukrainians weren't going to do that. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'll just throw in here one of the most important points that you make uh, throughout the book. Actually, is that we could choose peace. We we could have peace if only we didn't care about <laughs> the issues at stake uh, yes. enough to be willing to fight. <laughs> if we're right. willing to surrender and give up those things, then we don't have to fight. But however. Right. People have always cared about some things, at least sometimes have always uh, have cared about some things more than peace. And that remains true today. And that's why we're willing to fight. And that's why we might be willing to fight a massive war, because there might be something incredibly important at stake to us. That's right. This is the, uh, I quote John Lennon on this, yeah. right, who, uh, who had this wonderful, you know, during the Vietnam War, mm. a song called uh, War is Over If You Want It. Yeah. And people would ask him, well, you know, how do we end the war in Vietnam? And he said, well, just stop fighting, you know, put your guns down and walk away. Now, Lenin was not exactly the, the cheerful beetle, right? So I'm, mm. I'm pretty sure that what he had in mind when he wrote that was, you could stop war, but I know you're not going to. I and see. that's because yeah. you care more. There are things you care about more than peace, right? Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a quote that could, from one point of view, seem incredibly naive. And from another point of view, could seem incredibly smart. He's saying, you're choosing yeah. to do this because you care about other things as well as peace. <laughs> yes. It's always yeah, an active exactly. choice. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk now about what recommendations might possibly come out of your research. And of course, all of these issues are pretty tentative. And I suppose this uh, it sounds like the international order research project is uh, at an early stage and potentially has a has a long way to run. F- fingers crossed there'll be, there's a lot more to learn. I guess, first up, there's a reason why we're, we've done a lot of interviews this year on, on war. Uh, it's like very much in people's minds these days. Firstly, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and more, more recently, uh, like a lot of saber rattling o- o- over Taiwan. Yeah, looking around, what characteristics of the current international order stand out to you as important and salient? I think the way to describe it is that we have a fairly well-defined order in the liberal international order, right? And there are a couple of smaller regional orders. Russia, I think, is is the easiest one to point to, Hmm. where the Russians for a long time have believed that the countries in the near abroad, that is the former Soviet states, are only really kind of nominally independent. Mm. You know, they're, they're independent by the good graces of Moscow, mm. with the exception of the Baltics, I think, which are, are sort of, you know, they were uh, obtained later, and I think the Russians don't see themselves as being that... Um, Invested in it. Yeah, exactly. But the, the other states, the other former states of the former Soviet Union, I think, you know, that Russia has been 
spending part of the post-Cold War period essentially reestablishing its political dominance in those areas. Mm. And a big part of what's happened is that um, we've run out of wiggle room, right? We've run out of um, empty space. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the liberal international order has expanded to the point where we're now talking about incorporating former Soviet states. And that's uh, that's the point at which international orders bump up against each other. Push comes to shove. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and how about how about China? You know, it's funny. There was a statement early on in the Ukraine war from I think it was the Chinese foreign ministry. And it started off by saying People are drawing these parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan, and they're completely unwarranted. The situations are completely different. And I thought, mm. great, that's terrific. I'd, I'd love to believe that, you know. Yeah. And then the statement went on to say, because Ukraine is an independent country, whereas Taiwan is actually part of China. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I'm reassured. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, oh, that's so much better. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. That's 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 awesome. So the one that shouldn't be at war is yeah. at war, and the one that <laughs> right. should be isn't yet. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's even you know part of what's going on here is that you know the the stakes here are abstract and not really easily divisible, right? If Russia and Ukraine were fighting over Crimea, like and only Crimea, right? Mm. That's something that could be resolved fairly easily. What they're fighting over is kind of what kind of international environment they want to live in. Mm. Russia wants to live in one in which the former Soviet states are subservient and Ukraine is not interested in living in that world. And that is a much, you, you can't really split the pie, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a problem with Taiwan as well and possibly even a, a more serious problem because, you know, the war in Ukraine has gone on for a while Sometimes you'll see people saying, you know, my, my guess is the way that this is going to end is that Russia de facto swallows part of eastern Ukraine and they mm. declare peace and, you know, call it a day. I could conceivably see that happening just because of the prevalence of Russian speakers in the eastern part of the country, right? Mm. I don't see any of the same dividing lines in Taiwan. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. see the... Russia invading really decreased Ukraine's willingness to, well, in, in grading, uh, Russia invading and doing really poorly mm. militarily did not increase Ukraine's willingness to give up part of its country, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm not saying this is an obvious or easy deal to be made, but I don't even see that in, in Taiwan. Yeah, so are you saying it's quite hard to reach a peaceful negotiated settlement between Ukraine and Russia? Like one of the reasons why you ended up with a war was that the issues at stake are so expansive about the entire, like the international culture that these countries are going to have with one another that you couldn't right. simply sit down and kind of <laughs> and, and make, a, make an easy agreement with like various different points. It's just because everything is on the table. Right. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, are there any other important aspects of the international order that we, that we haven't mentioned that are worth discussing? I mean, here, here we've like we've haven't really discussed Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia uh, very much. But I suppose potentially from a from a great power war and nuclear war point of view, they're not the most important actors. I mean, I, I think the thing that I would say is when people talk about things that can be done to increase the prospects for peace in the current international structure. There, there are a handful of ways to think about it, right? Um, let, let's start with an understanding of war 
that comes from Clausewitz, but actually was really well articulated by a guy named Jim Fearon in 1995 called the bargaining theory of war, where he pointed out, you know, sort of, yes, war is an extension of politics, but uh, in the sense that you have an issue, you negotiate over it, and war is what happens when you can't reach a negotiated settlement. So we need to understand why you can't reach a settlement, right? Yeah. So from that perspective, what you're seeing in these cases is issues arise that people are willing to fight and die over, hmm. and they can't arrive at a settlement short of war. Yeah. So how do you fix that? You can make them less committed to the values that currently, you know, they currently have, right? Like, yeah. You know, Ukraine could say, I don't really want that territory, right? That's not likely going to happen. One in which the likely costs of war are very high. Here, I think the... Nuclear deterrence? Well, I was going to say, like, you know, one theoretical way to do this would be give Ukraine nuclear weapons. Do you want to do that? No, (laughs) I don't want to do that. I think it's a terrible idea. It might, you know, it might increase the odds that the war will end. But if it doesn't, it probably increase the cost dramatically. Yeah. But actually, I think sanctions, the, the... unbelievably broad crippling sanctions that were implemented in Ukraine are a fantastic signal for China and a warning for China that they can expect the same in Taiwan. So I think that like actions like that actually can make a difference. It's hard to make a difference in the current conflict, but it can make a difference for for the future. By setting an example that you're willing to pay a high price in order to punish territorial conquest or or annexation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I'm not quite sure what the practical implications. So I suppose, you know, things are going on in the world all the time, and I kind of sure. want to have some opinion. Ideally, I want to say what, what, you know, it would, it would improve humanity's prospects if country X does does, does Y. And then I'm trying to bring in uh, this international order framework uh, to yeah. bear, and then think, well, what does this imply about you know policy for the UK or the US or uh, you know, in principle, what would I want Russia to do? I guess it seems like what one bottom line with the international order framing is that the, the most peaceful uh, state of the world would be one hegemon who is powerful enough to dominate, uh, well, e- either dominate or ideologically swayed everyone in the world. <laughs> so now there's like, right. so now there's peace within this one order and then there's no one else to fight. Um, I guess unless aliens come along. Or, I mean, or, or less, you know, less uncharitably, uh, you know, provide security for everybody. I see. Right. Because one way to think about it. If you it, fight amongst yourselves, we will punish the aggressor. Yes, exactly. Hmm. And that's a, I think that's a common understanding of how hierarchical international orders form. That is that hmm. it's a trade of security for autonomy. I see. You know, the smaller states say, we, we'll give you some policy thing that you want. Like, we'll vote with you at the UN. We'll give you basing rights. We'll, you know, pay cash, whatever. And you will provide security for us. So if there's a, a hegemon that's powerful enough to make that trade with all the countries in the world, hmm. then that would definitely be a situation in which you'd, you'd find more peace. Yeah, We are pretty powerful, but we've decided to limit the scope of our security deals to democracies. And that inherently limits the scope of the, of the order. Yeah. Is that for ideological reasons or just because it's so impractical to try to make those deals with everyone? Like, you know, the, the U.S. military is powerful, but it's not omnipowerful. Well, uh, I don't know. I, I think they'd rise to the challenge. Um, <laughs> you know, we already outspend the next 14 countries or whatever it is, or 11 or 12. Yeah, but you've got to ship everything over. It's a whole effort. Right. So, <laughs> go, go on. No, no, I think actually it's because... Um, that would mean agreeing to outcomes that are normatively unacceptable. So, right. like, we would have to be cool with the way the Chinese treat the Uyghurs. 
mm. or, or at least agree to look the other way. Sorry, in what way? Well, I mean, if we were to include China in a broader sort of concert system. I see. Right? Right. And, uh, you know, and not... We feel uncomfortable because we're making right. allies out of people we have ideological and moral disagreements with. Right, exactly. And so we would have to give up, again, let's get back to the John Lennon point, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the simple answer to how to stop war is stop caring about things. <laughs> you know, which... I mean, well, and it's a great example of how, you know, ways in which the Enlightenment doesn't universally encourage peace is that without the Enlightenment, we might not give two shits about uh, yes. a group of people we know nothing about on the other side of the world. And we might not care about the conquest of Taiwan and the rights of Taiwanese right. people. Um, and that would be bad in one way, but it would be good in the one way that you'd be less likely to have a great power conflict <laughs> over those issues. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, Steven Pinker talks about the rise of empathy as a, you know, as a cause of peace. And it yeah. probably is. But it also so, leads us to go fight wars in faraway places for people we empathize with. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask a question that's just this is like uh, any kind of policy suggestion you might have about what the liberal, like how the liberal international order ought to shift itself over time or how it ought to interface with China, what agreement it might ideally make with China or Russia. Yeah, sure. How do we get from our current understanding of international order to a more peaceful system? Right. And, and yeah. one way, as I just mentioned, is, uh, you know, care less about about things. But that's it's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. Another is uh, to increase the likely costs of war. Hmm. So the states are more reluctant to go to war. But that's a pretty double edged sword. <laughs> well, yeah. As I say, the way that I'm trying to do it is to say, hey, escalation's really bad. Escalation is probably more costly than you realize, mm. right? Mm. And I'm trying to get that message out there and get people to realize that when you get invested in a war, it's not like if you're trying to predict how old a person is going to be, the older they are, the fewer years you give them, right? Mm. With a war, it's exactly the opposite. The bigger it gets, the, the bigger you predict it's going to be. Mm. And people don't get that intuition. So I'm hoping that, that helping to get that to sink in will at least help people appreciate the costs of war that they already face. I see. Yeah, I see. So something that's unambiguously bad is if people are taking actions that incur a high risk of a really catastrophic war and they don't realize it. <laughs> yes. Because then you yes. bear all the costs of the war and you don't have any of the benefit of deterrence. Right. I see. I think one problem we face is that we haven't had a massive war in a long time. And so people do not appreciate... They don't read the news about Ukraine and imagine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, New York being a smoldering ruin right? and fully contemplate that actions that they take regarding Ukraine could result in the complete destruction of their societies right. in a way that people or, in 1946, probably that was very front of mind. Right. And they also don't, they don't appreciate things like the Iran-Iraq war, yeah, which is not a war on a global scale, but it was a massively costly war for those two societies. Yeah, right. Unbelievably deadly. And so even if they don't see the potential for, like, you know, the spread of war across the international system, they should appreciate the possibility that a war that's reasonably well contained is just going to kill a lot of people. Yeah, right. I see. So it, it, just making it more salient to people that even in the present day, wars escalate to a phenomenal degree and kill a shocking fraction of the population of the combatant countries. Uh, we, we should remember that because it could be us next. Yeah. Are there any incremental changes to the current yeah, international order that would lower the risk of war that are actually plausible? <laughs> right, right. 
incremental changes, you know, like I said, I, th- I think the most hope lies in information. That is information about the dangers of escalation, hmm. information about other states' likely costs of war. And this is why I think sanctions were such a good thing, because they conveyed hmm. information to China about the likely cost that, that the likely costs of invading Taiwan are probably higher than they think. Yeah. So so I think there's room to to work at the margin there. There's also room to work by, you know, increasing the costs of invasion, which, mm. you know, we do by bolstering the troops in the area and so on and so forth. So so I think there is some wiggle room there, but it all, you know, in terms of something large and transformational that's going to produce a change like the end of the Cold War, it's hard to imagine that without a fundamental restructuring of international order. Yeah, yeah. Well, do, do you think there is a case for a more transactional, arguably accepting of evil arrangement between the US and China? <laughs> that would say, well, the war is just so costly that we have to sacrifice other values. And I mean, to some extent, right. you already are. It's like the US did not invade China because of the Uyghurs. It, right. it complained right. a whole bunch, but it knows that it knows that that is not anywhere near within its power. We are transactional in some case, like in some ways. We just don't call it that. <laughs> yeah, one, one of my students, uh, Andy Goodhart, is actually looking at this question. Uh, mm. He's looking at uh, societies that, well, not not the, not the China question in particular, but. He's looking at societies that have based their or international orders that have based their legitimacy primarily on performance. Mm. Like we will keep you from being invaded rather than legitimacy in the sense of like we have a normatively correct way of ordering society and we think you agree with us. And so let's form a, you know, let's form an international society based on those principles. Mm. So I think China to a large extent is already doing this. If you ask people why it is that they, people in China, like, why do you support the Chinese state? I think a lot of the answers you would get are, you know, they're not like, I'm a true believer in communism. They're, mm. you know, my parents grew up in a hut and now I drive a BMW, right? Right. <laughs> you know, so so China's, you know, I, I tend to think, at least domestically, China already sort of operates on those principles. I'm not entirely sure... It's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's a huge, big, open, interesting question as to whether we yeah. can kind of reach an accommodation along those lines. But the problem is you have to convince people to restructure what they would say is, you know, the most successful alliance in history. I mean, also going half of the way there could be the worst of all worlds. Because so let's say you start giving more transactional signals to China that you're not really going to have a values-based foreign policy. And then they invade Taiwan. And then you're like, the population's not actually with you. And maybe your heart wasn't really in that in the first place. So now you do respond. Now you're at war because <laughs> you've given yeah, indications right. that you're not going to retaliate. But actually, you kind of always were <laughs> in, your, in your heart of hearts. It's just a, just a right. nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, I mean, these kinds of uh, international relations is full of perverse outcomes like that. Yeah, yeah. So lots of people in the audience would love to help reduce the risk of conflict, uh, reduce the risk of both smaller wars and, and, and larger wars if they can. What could listeners take away about ways that they could potentially contribute or that their countries could contribute? I, I suggest graduate school in political science for one thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> you know. I mean, honestly, it does feel like that's the answer sometimes that maybe yeah. one has to be extremely knowledgeable in order to give good advice on these things. Yeah, and we just, we you know, the, the way that we've structured our pursuit of understanding war mm. is not one that maps really well to 
understanding relationship between order and war. And so, you know, we read academia, I think, needs a, a fundamental reorientation hmm. in terms of, of how it thinks about um, conflict and uh, aggregation across levels and dynamics and things like that. Yeah. This is where the book gets pretty dark, hmm. right? I think the best thing that people can do is think about that card analogy, 96 cards, do you, do you really want to draw one? And try to get a better fundamental understanding of, of how escalation works and then vote accordingly. Yeah. Right. Um, because I think if I had understood just how dangerous war is prior to writing this book, I would have been a lot less even handed in sort of policy arguments in the past you know, 20 years or so. Yeah. I would have seen the maintenance of peace as a much higher priority. And I think that that can help. Yeah. It seems like making a blockbuster movie about a war between the US and China that occurs in a realistic way where both sides get absolutely screwed. And the end of the movie is these countries are in shambles. And hopefully it's watched on, on both sides. And it really makes salient to both sides the risk that they're running and maybe causes both to be a bit less aggressive and try to find more ways to, to avoid it. It seems like sure. uh, it's, it's, like it's a little bit harder to see how that backfires. That's a, no, that's a good point. And um, I, I don't know if you remember a movie called The Day After. Yes. It was, you know, really, Horrific. really brought home the dangers of nuclear war. And you could tell, like for a while at least, had that impact in society. Mm. Right? It was, it was all anybody talked about. This was even, if I remember correctly, it was even before social media. Like it was clear that everybody was talking about it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, uh, that's all of the questions I had for you on international orders. Let's now come back to the core topic of the book, about which we left everyone hanging earlier on, which is this empirical question of whether, by the numbers, war is in long-term decline or not. As uh, we were talking about earlier, uh, the book is in part a response to The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker, uh, where, among other things, he argues that, indeed, war, war, war is in long-term decline. On balance, Obviously, you think that when it comes to interstate conflict, Pinker is wrong to think that that kind of uh, violence is uh, d- does have a long-term trend downwards, and we ought to be less worried about it today than maybe we should have been 50 or 100, 150, to, or maybe 200 years ago. But before we dive into that, uh, what do you think Pinker gets right? Because uh, he makes uh, a lot of different arguments in The Better Angels of Our Nature, and, and, and you're far from disagreeing with him on, on all of it. No, I don't. And I think, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think he gets the broader story about human cooperation right, despite not getting the particulars. There's actually been a lot of literature recently on human prosociality that points out, for one thing, that humans are, by the standards of other species, insanely willing to cooperate outside of their immediate kin group. Mm. You know, we, we always talk about ants being cooperative, but ants have never been to the moon. It's just incredible what humanity has done by cooperating. And that strand of the literature, I think, is what he was sort of picking up on when he was thinking about this book. Mm -hmm. At least that's my sense. And that literature has a really fundamentally good point to make, that cooperation is the key to humanity's rise. He just misses the fact that we're really warlike, too. (laughs) And those two things aren't necessarily contradictory. As far as the other forms of violence that he mentions, like crime and so on, so I'm I'm totally agnostic about those. Mm. You know, I don't want to pretend to be an expert in something I'm not. 
<laughs> and I read those yeah. chapters and I thought, eh, maybe, I, I don't know, that sounds plausible. And I think all the people who write about crime read the chapters on war and went, oh, that sounds about right. You know? <laughs> it's just yeah. when it gets into your own field, you start saying, mm, I don't think so. Everything gets more complicated the more you know about it. Oh, most right, things anyway. Right. But I also think that he's right about the fact that we've made progress in reducing conflict. I just think that progress is very limited and we don't really understand it fully. Mm. And I don't really find his causal mechanism compelling. Yeah, that's a super fascinating issue that we'll come back to later. We should maybe be clear about, yeah, what exactly was uh, Pinker claiming that, that you disagree with? Because I, I feel like it's possible to get a bit confused between kind of two different claims. One would be that, say, the present era since 1990 to the present day is more peaceful than maybe the long run average, or perhaps that since the end of World War II to today, that's been more peaceful than the long run average. That's one claim. And I think maybe that is actually more plausibly on, on, on the table. The other bolder claim, perhaps, is that there is a long, term trend towards a reduction in interstate uh, conflict since, say, 1700 or 1600 or so on, which I think uh, you're maybe um, more skeptical still about that, about mm -hmm. that one. Right. Is that, is that right. right? You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm skeptical about some of the mechanisms that he talks about, you know, the arguments about the role of the Enlightenment, for example, I think don't really pass superficial muster. But, you know, I'm, I'm not an Enlightenment scholar. My area is, is understanding mm. numbers in war. And so, you know, the main part that I disagree with is when we get into the actual data analysis and, you know, the claims that he makes about, he, he actually lays out four of them right there in his book. And, you know, one, as you say, is uh, the, the main two are, you know, a long-term reduction in conflict. And the second one was actually, he argues for an increase in the lethality of warfare that declines after World War II, mm. which is, I mean, seems like it would be a slam dunk since World War II sort of, you know, rewrote the book on lethality and warfare. But, you know, I think there are pretty compelling reasons not to not to buy those stories. So if I recall in the book, Pinga focuses on this quantity that that's I think it's the percentage of the global population dying in wars per per year. Right. And he argues that that has trended down on, on average towards the present day over over some period. I think to many people that might seem to settle the issue that uh, if, if a smaller fraction of the population is dying per year in wars, then that is pretty strong indication that that war must be in decline. Yeah. Why do you think that that uh, wouldn't settle the issue? Well, so first of all, I should note. You know, in the book, I take a look at three different measures of war. Hmm. The raw lethality of war, lethality per capita, that is the battle deaths divided by the populations of the combatants, and then lethality as a percentage of world population. And hmm. I should note that people who study war basically never use the last one. Like That is not a measure that exists in the literature. Hmm. And I think the reason is that they think of war as behavior, hmm. right? And they're trying to explain that behavior. How you measure something really depends on what you think that thing is. Like, if you think of war as a cause of deaths, like heart attacks, yeah, then you probably do want to take a look at war divided by world population, you know, one year after another. Mm. And you'd find that, you know, it's really small in recent years. You'd also find that it's really not small in 1916, 1917, 1918, 1940, 1941. Like, mm. you know, nobody talks about those years, but you would find that it's small in recent years. But, but what does that tell you? Maybe, uh, and this is a 
Oka et al. piece that I from PNAS that I cite in the in the book, they argue that as societies get bigger, the size of the war group, you know, the army and military, gets smaller as a percentage of the population. Right. So maybe that's what's going on. Hmm. Maybe the state system is just growing, and you know, states are relative to previous decades just smaller and weaker and farther apart. Hmm. You know, there are a lot of reasons for changes in the annual rate of war deaths per capita worldwide that aren't people getting less warlike. Now, if you think of war as behavior, you want to know how often wars happen. You want to know how big they get. Interestingly enough, if you forget about the year-to-year count, if you look at the lethality of wars measured as deaths divided by world population, the lethality of wars has not declined, even by that measure. I see. Which, is, which really should scare you because world population has grown a lot, right? And if the lethality of wars tracks with that, that's pretty bad. So, you know, the reason that I find it a little bit that, that I, I don't think people should be satisfied with that measure is that wars are sort of like pandemics. Pandemics are really not a huge cause of human death at all most of the time, unless you happen to be in a year with a pandemic. It's incredibly clustered. Along the same lines, theoretically, everybody's at risk from a heart attack. But the population of China is not at risk from a war that's happening half a world away that they have nothing to do with, right? So Mm. that's kind of the, I think that's the main dividing line between the mindsets of people who find those two different measures appealing. Right. So I suppose in the book, you refer to this approach of thinking about it as a percentage of the global population dying in war per year as the uh, thinking about war as a, as a public health problem. Right. So you're trying to evaluate how, how large is that as a fraction of, of all deaths, say. Whereas you're more interested in studying, I guess, cultural and political and international relations changes where you're instead, I guess, trying to study yeah, human behavior and, and culture and uh, mm-hmm. propensities. And for that, we kind of want a, a, a different thing. We want to see, you know, how often when there's an opportunity for a war to start, a plausible opportunity, does does a war start? Right. Uh, and, so, and, so, and so instead you start looking at these war initiation rates and things like that, which, which, which we're going to talk about later. You, you were saying that even if war likeness remained constant over time, because the population of countries is getting larger over the last few hundred years, we might expect fewer people to be dying in battle because as countries get larger, they have a lower fraction of their population in their army. Correct. I suppose because they feel like they're hitting declining returns and they, they just don't need to have so many people in their army in order to plausibly be able to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so we might have expected just just on that fact alone uh, for war to be in decline by this kind of health uh, or like fractional deaths measure. And yet you think it's it's actually not not declining, right. <laughs> even by that measure, or at least not, not reliably declining. What, what, what I was... Putting together this question, I, I went to the Our World in Data website and uh, looked at their graph for, was it global conflict deaths, a comparison of different data sources, number of deaths uh, over world population from 1400 to 2017. And to me, it just looked like a complete mess. Yeah. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's kind of low and then, it, and then it goes up a bit and then it goes back down again and then it goes up again and then it goes down again. And it kind of just seems to do that basically since 1500. I suppose World War I and World War II stand out a bit, but there's been enormous periods of serious conflict in the past as well. And looking at zooming out that much, the current period just doesn't look special at all. <laughs> at least not to me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just, just, just eyeballing it, right? No, I think that's exactly right. So maybe then what, what is the fundamental crux of the disagreement between you and Pickett? If you could talk for a long time, why does he think it's declining from this health point of view 
when I guess you don't and and just, and eyeballing it, it seems like it's not declining. I, I would have to know more about him to know why he's reading the data okay, in right, the way okay. that he is, and I I don't, and I don't want to guess. So okay, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. you know. Think, thinking about, I suppose, a broader group of people who in, endorse this decline of war the, uh, theory. Do, do you have any sense of what the crux of the disagreement is between them and uh, people who are more likely to agree with you? Well, you know, I think my sense, like abstracting away from the particulars for a minute, my sense of like why Pinker and I are coming from different places, and this may relate to sort of broader groups of people in, in society, in a nutshell is that he's a psychologist and I'm a political scientist, Um, he locates the drivers of behavior inside individual humans, right? And I I think a lot of people Mm. reflexively do that. I study the war in political scientists and sociologists and other social scientists in these areas, study the way that individual incentives produce group behavior. And fundamental to that perspective is is something called the ecological inference fallacy. That is the, the idea that you can infer group behavior from individual characteristics or or vice versa, which clearly isn't the case. One example, in the U.S., wealthier states vote Democratic, but you can't from that infer that wealthier people vote Democratic. In fact, wealthier people vote Republican. So, you know, the, the characteristics of individuals don't necessarily have anything to do with the characteristics of aggregates, right? Because aggregates don't just transmit right. people's preferences directly. So while he does acknowledge the role of the state at the start of his story, most of his story is about what's happening inside, you know, human minds over time. And I think that's a story that is Hmm. easy for people to wrap their heads around and intuitively connects Hmm. to the way that people think about the world. But one of my biggest problems when I was reading through the book is that human aggregates have their own dynamics and characteristics. And where those come from is actually a fascinating set of topics, but it's not, you can't just take it for granted. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I suppose people who study, whose fields naturally study individuals, uh, they they might notice that on an individual level, people's attitudes towards violence are are changing radically. And perhaps someone in 1800 would have been far more likely to endorse violence as a legitimate response to something than someone in in a survey today. And then it's very natural to go from that and say, well, doesn't that strongly suggest that war must be on the decline? Uh, And you're saying not necessarily, uh, because war is mediated by by many things, not just individual uh, dispositions. It's about it's about behavior in groups, and maybe the incentives for states have changed, and the technology has changed, and all these other things have changed that could cause war to be even more common and more destructive, despite people disliking it <laughs> even more than they did. Oddly enough, well, it's not even necessarily that um, those factors would be outweighed by other factors. My colleague at Ohio State, John Mueller, is another one of the folks who argues in favor of a decline of war, and I think he gets he makes a really good point, which is that. Anti-war sentiment, the idea that we have to abolish war, really reached its peak between World War I and World War II. I mean, in in the 1930s was the heyday of the let's make war illegal movement, right? The Calic Beyond Pact and so on and so forth. Mm. So I think he... Did it work? Didn't work, right. Right, that's the thing. And John's reaction to that point is, well, that has to do with Adolf Hitler. You know, it was just one guy didn't get the memo. Well, arguably. It seems like but, a piece that fragile. Yes. <laughs> if, if one guy not getting the memo can very... cause World War II, <laughs> that's a big problem. Then we shouldn't be studying what people in general believe at all. 
But also, um, you could make a good argument that the anti-war sentiment in the 1930s made Hitler's rise easier. Right? The people, people were complacent. They thought that mm. they'd managed to find a lasting peace and as a result were less willing to stand up to him. Mm. So this is a great example of the difference between individual attitudes and then group outcomes where you could have a situation where a whole group, a large group of people uh, become very opposed to war and so they disarm themselves and this creates an incentive for a wolf to enter the scene basically and, and think, wow, this is great, I can hunt all of these sheep and get away with murder. And so maybe that happened, maybe it didn't, but it demonstrates the point that you can't necessarily go from individual attitudes to understanding global trends. Okay, let's get into the weeds a little bit and acquaint ourselves with the data set you're mostly using in the book, which is the uh, the data from the Correlates of War Project, which uh, I learned has been running since 1963. Uh, and I think in the early 2000s had to had to move to, to Penn State. Uh, I think it's now at Appalachian State or UT Austin. It just moved hmm. uh, just recently. But yeah, it's under new governance. Okay, yeah. So it's the child of many parents over, over many years. A lot, of, a lot of time has gone into it. What time period does the data set cover? So there are actually multiple data sets. There's a data set, uh, Interstate Wars, which just covers wars. There's a data set on militarized interstate disputes, which covers the threat, uh, threats, displays, and uses of force. And then there are some less used data sets. There's the extra-state war data set, which is a data set of wars between countries and non-country entities, like colonies, mm. for example. Uh, right. There's a data set of non-state wars, which are wars among non-state entities. And then there's a data set of civil wars. Yeah. So a lot of different categories. To answer your question, sorry, that was a long way of getting around. Uh, they all cover the period 1815 to something like the present, like 2010, 2015. Okay. So, so there's all of these different categories of conflicts. As I understand it in the book, you just focus on state versus state conflict, uh, basically. One reason for this is that people who study these issues think that it's possible to have quite different trends for state versus state uh, in, international conflicts as opposed to civil wars. You could have civil wars increasing and state versus state conflict going down or vice versa. They, they, they tend to follow different dynamics. And I suppose you're excluding state versus non-state actors and, and, and vice versa. Is, is that also right? That's Well, I, I do bring those data sets in at one point just as sort of a robust mm. check, for the, but, but for the most part, I don't use them. And the reason is we're not interested in the frequency of conflict initiation over time, hmm. you know, just the raw count, because the international system gets bigger. So hmm. it just, just naturally the number of conflicts is going to increase as the number of opportunities increase. What we want to look at is the rate of conflict initiation, which is the number of initiations divided by the number of opportunities. Hmm. Now, to know the number of opportunities, you have to know how many actors there are. And there's a clear answer to that in the data on the state system. There is no clear answer to that, um, the data on extra-state wars, right? They don't have any data on the you know, possible wars or wars that didn't happen. So, and there's no comprehensive list of non-state actors during that time. Or potential non-state actors. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned at one point in the book that prior to unification, India was made up of something like 525 princely states. Do we want to say that the mm. British could have gone to war with all of them, each of them? <laughs> you know, so that, that gets to yeah, a conceptual it's... model. So one reason is that the kind of analysis that I was doing just wasn't possible outside of the interstate mm. data. Another is that, you know, specialists in the field for better or for worse, tend to treat interstate conflict as a distinct thing, 
right? The, the causes of civil wars or the causes of extra-state conflicts tend to differ, and the dynamics of those conflicts differ. Yeah. For my purposes, I'm particularly concerned about great power conflict and the risk of nuclear war or a war so large that it could really take humanity off track as a, as a whole. And I think for, for that purpose, state versus state conflict seems by far the most likely uh, possibility. So, so it's actually uh, great from my point of view that, that that's the focus area. How big a problem is it that all of these data sets start right at the point that the Napoleonic Wars end and an unusually peaceful period of European history begins? It seems like that kind of might skew the trends a bit. You know, it's funny. I've, I've seen this criticism. And to be honest, I'm not sure I get it. I think the idea is that this whole like 100 year period of relative peace, you know, 19th century is like a statistical fluke. But the mm. point of using statistical tests is not to be misled by statistical flukes, you know? Mm. So um, I'm trying to analyze the data in a way that would account for the possibility that this is just a glitch, right? Now, for Pinker's thesis, I think the existence of that peaceful period in European history is a real problem. And I think he glosses over it. He mentions it only very briefly, I think, on one page. Right. I guess the the, the concern might be that I assume that they've actually chosen 1815 because that is when the Napoleonic Wars ended and perhaps it was, you know, it's not a randomly chosen start date. And so potentially the, the fact that <laughs> it's not a randomly chosen start date potentially negatively uh, biases the, the the beginning of the data set. Now, I suppose if you're doing the statistical test properly, then hopefully that should take into account that. And it shouldn't really matter whether you begin it at the start of the Napoleonic Wars or, 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 or the end of them. Uh, hopefully the findings should be robust regardless. So from that perspective, that, that's an, I like that that way of, of summarizing the issue. Um, from that perspective, what I'd say is that most other data sets start at 1945. <laughs> and the reason that they do, first of all, you know, data availability, but also there's this sense that, you know, the years after a major war are coherent in a way that the years, that they might be dissimilar to the years prior to that war in, in fundamental ways. So they want to start at the beginning of a new yeah. international system or international regime, right? So from that perspective, just the fact that they started at the end of the Napoleonic Wars doesn't necessarily mitigate one way or the other in terms of conflict. As you saw after 1945, rates of conflict worldwide were actually quite high, you know, at the initiation of a new international system. Mm. And there's no reason that that couldn't have been the case in Europe as well. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about how there's a challenge counting the number of actors in the system. Uh, you, you talked about the yeah. the, the interstate uh, system. So going back to you know how many states were there in 1916, not a trivial question uh, to establish. But even having established how many state actors there are uh, in any at any given point in time, how do you count wars? So uh, I'm wondering, for for example, when in the Second Gulf War you had the U.S. in uh, invading Iraq. But you also had mm-hmm. the UK invading Iraq. So is that one war or is that two wars? And, and then if, if you start thinking about World War II, sure. the sheer number of different states that were in conflict with one another at different points and switching who they were in conflict sometimes, it seems like counting the number of conflicts occurring is, is, is itself like quite challenging. Yeah. The two data sets that I primarily use do these in different ways, right? The interstate war data, one war is one observation, right? So World War II was just one you know, one one conflict. Hmm. The militarized interstate dispute counts every bilateral use of force as a case, right? So they, okay. they do it both ways. I take the point that 
you know, it gets to be a ridiculous, looking at World War II, it's a ridiculous number of conflict initiations, right? Mm. But um, I think mm. the justification, mm. I'm speculating a little bit, but I have some basis in the sense that um, the Correlates of War Project was born at the University of Michigan, and that's where I did my graduate training. So I, I knew the Correlates of War folks pretty well. Mm. I think they would argue that states are agents, that they have autonomy, that they can choose whether or not to become involved in a war. And what they want to do is study that choice. Mm. And sometimes states will make a contingent promise to go to war, like I'll, I'll form an alliance with you, and then you get into a war and I'll get dragged into the war with you. But that's no less my choice, in a sense. Right. I see. So so the answer is, I guess, if, if you have a war where there's 10 allied parties who all declare war on a group of another 10 allied countries, then there'd be 100 wars going on uh, by, by this measure. There'd be one war, but 100 uses of force. 100 uses of force. I see. Okay. Because they're not fighting each other. They're, they're just fighting across. So it's 10 plus 10 plus 10. You, uh, you had it right, 100. Yeah. Okay. I suppose... Another thing that, that I'm not quite sure how it gets treated is, you know, during the 19th century, as, as you were saying, there was a point at which there were, in a sense, yeah. like 500 small states in India right. because it wasn't a unified actor. And then uh, over some period of time, Britain ended up in mm-hmm. control of almost all of it. By one measure, you might think, well, that's going to result in something like 500 wars. But in this data set, I think it, it doesn't show up that way. How would that appear? Well, first of all, it wouldn't show up in, the, in either of the interstate data sets at all. It would show up as a colonial war which would show up in the extra state wars data set. And in that data set, one war is one war. Mm. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't look at initiations of, of use of force. So even if the British did go to, to war mm. with all of the princely states in India at the same time, it would only be counted as one conflict. As I understand it, so all of the, each of those princely states, they don't meet the threshold for being a state um, so, at, within, the, within this data set. What deaths are included? Uh, it doesn't include civilian deaths. We're talking about battlefield deaths because that's far better measured. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Even in recent years, there have been okay. tremendous debates about you know how many civilians were killed in a war. And so they just decided at some point that they had far more reliable records on battle deaths than they did on civilian deaths. And so that was a, sort of a pragmatic decision. Yeah. So in terms of trying to understand trends in, in war-likeness, that is, it's fine just to use battlefield uh, deaths so long as the ratio of battlefield deaths to civilian deaths is roughly constant. <laughs> I guess it depends, again, on what, what exact question you're, you're asking. But in terms of maybe how worried we should be about war, if far more civilians are getting killed now than in the past, right. then that increase in uh, source of concern might get masked in this data because those civilians aren't being counted because we're only trying to count battlefield deaths because that's more practical. H- how much of a concern is that? You know, it's hard to, without concrete data, it's hard to say. But there are a handful of these mm. issues. Um, Tanisha Fazal actually wrote a terrific article about uh, battlefield medicine in war and pointed out that her criticism of Pinker's book was that he failed to take into account the fact that between 1815 and now, your odds of surviving being shot in battle have dramatically increased. You look at the statistics on the U.S. Civil War, for example, and uh, you lost a ridiculous number of people, mm-hmm. not to the primary injury, but to the disease that followed. And right, we've taken, bacterial infection. Yeah, exactly. So we've taken great strides, you know, in improving battlefield medicine. And so her argument is mm-hmm. that 
part of the reason he sees a decline is that he, uh, you know, he's ignoring the fact that battlefield medicine has gotten better. The disturbing thing from my point of view is that mm. you know, I, I don't find a decline. And I do believe that battlefield medicine has gotten better. And if you put those two things together, mm. it sounds like we're trying to kill even more people, <laughs> but we're only succeeding at you know, the same level on balance. Right. Yeah. And just failing. Pulling all of this together, how much should we trust this correlates of war data set? I suppose you've used it because it's the it's the best thing going. It was the it was the the best thing yeah. that you had at, at the time in order to try to answer these questions. But how how much further do we have to go towards? I guess trying to produce the, the perfect data set that we could really trust. Oh, I, I don't know that we could get there. I mean, I think political scientists are going to argue no matter yeah no matter what. But um, it's a great question. As you said, the Coralist of War project started in the 1960s. And some of the ways that it was set up, I think, are people have argued that they're too restrictive, right? Like the, the uh, coding rules for who belongs in the interstate system are, especially in the very early years, extremely West-centric uh, and Eurocentric. And I think those complaints are totally fair. And that's something that I think has to change before too long. I mean, there have been enough criticisms now that Cal really needs to revisit their state membership criteria and expand the data set. The challenge is that since the 1960s, other data sets have been built on the membership mm-hmm. list for the international system. So, you know, there's a degree of sort of institutional lock-in, mm-hmm. but, um, but they can at least make a start. On the other hand, it is a, a well-funded effort. It's a lot of scholars from a you know, shocking range of sources. It's benefited from an amazing array of expertise. Lots of scholars have had eyes on it over the last mm. you know, six decades and been able to complain to the correlates of war people about codings. And so, you know, I think the data that are there, like you might not like what the correlates of war project does, but to me it does what it does pretty convincingly. At least we can be fairly confident that major errors that would have been flagged by the conflict studies community have been corrected. Okay, pushing on. As you talked about earlier, a graph of war deaths is always dominated by a handful of especially bloody wars. They just stand out like peaks and then sometimes you know, other wars just kind of dis- disappear on the, on the y-axis. In the book, you describe how this has potentially led people to see patterns in the data where none exist. Can you explain that phenomenon? So wars tend to be like very big, very rare events. And depending on when the biggest ones happen, it's really easy to see trends when there are none, right? So just imagine that over the past two centuries, the timing of wars has happened essentially at random. And the lethality of wars can go from mm-hmm. a thousand battle deaths, which is the minimum criterion, all the way up to World War II, right? But when that happens, is essentially random. So um, depending on when they happen, it's really easy mm-hmm. to see trends where there are none. Right. If World War I and World War II happen at the beginning of the period, you're going to say, oh, there's a downward trend. If they happen at the end of the period, you're going to say, oh, there's an upward trend. Right. So, you know, we usually misjudge trends for one or two reasons. One is that wars are really rare and we haven't seen many of them recently. This is like people uh, canceling their earthquake insurance because there haven't been any earthquakes recently. Right. <laughs> you know, there will be, just wait, but they go a long time without an earthquake and it seems like it's a safe idea. Yeah. You know? And the other one is that, um, you know, recent deadly wars tend to make us overcompensate in the other direction. That is, we, we tend to be far more worried about big wars happening than probably we should be. 
So yeah, the fact that so, so wars power, uh, follow this thing called a, a power law, which we'll come back to, which is basically just saying a small number of wars cause most of the deaths. But everyone who studies this is aware of this. I, uh, I think you know Stephen Pinker is surely aware of this. He's a he's a very smart guy. Doesn't seem like this issue is rocket science, at least for someone with statistical training. <laughs> How is it that people are maybe potentially overreading trends in the data when this is just such a clear problem? Well, you know, it's funny. Power laws are are really hard. I was going to say, even if you have statistical training, but sometimes even especially if you have statistical training, they fool the naked eye in the way that I described. Right. They can also fool standard statistical tests. Anyone who's taken a class in your audience, is probably, a statistics class, is probably familiar with the central limit theorem, right? which, which is the theorem that ensures that if you have a, a sample, the average of that sample will be pretty close to the average of the population. So you can poll 100 people and get a pretty representative, as long as they're a representative sample, you can ask them, how much do you like the president and get a, you know, a nationally responsive answer uh, or representative answer within, you know, certain percentage points. Mm. But the central limit theorem, people often don't read the fine print. It makes a lot of assumptions. Well, only two. One is that uh, you have at least, I think, 30 observations or something like that as a rule of thumb. Okay. <laughs> and the other one is that the distribution of the data is not too far from normal. And power law distributions are very, 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 very far from normal. So all of the tools, and this was something I ran into, I hadn't anticipated when I started the project, but all of the tools that you learn in a statistics class end up not being useful for measuring and testing trends of uh, trends in warfare. So you just need to go and find completely new tests, or maybe does invent new tests. Yes. Yeah, which, both of which I did in the course of this project. But I, let's put it this way. I thought I understood power laws before I started <laughs> this project. And what you saw with me being really horrified at the end of Chapter 5 and saying, this is very, very bad. We need to pay attention to escalation. It's way, way worse than I thought it was, was kind of the education that I got in the course of writing the book and mm. getting a better handle on the mathematics of power laws. Okay, so to get around this issue of accidentally inferring a change where none really exists and it's just a chance difference, yet you use something called change point analysis to test statistically whether there are different periods in history with greater and lower rates of interstate violence than could be explained by by chance alone. Uh, And I suppose you've chosen a specification that works around or or tolerates the fact that deaths or occurrence of wars can be clustered and and, and distributed in in, in a power law. Can you explain how those tests uh, work? I'm not sure you want me to, but I'm happy to. (laughs) So let me say you measure some characteristic across two groups, like the heights of men and women. You got a group of men, you got a group of women, you measure their heights. Mm. And you find that on average, there's Mm. a difference. Men are taller. But you want to know, is that difference bigger than what you'd expect to see by chance? One way to answer that question is to go to your statistical textbook. There's a statistical formula for it. You can run a test, but there's also a more intuitive way to answer it. A lot more work before computers, but it, it exists. You just reshuffle the people into new groups of the same size thousands of times. Then you measure the difference in heights across groups thousands of times. And that tells you how much height varies by chance. You literally randomize the members of the group and then see how much their height varies. You do that lots and lots of times. And then you see how much the actual sample stands out. Is, yes. it, is it really far on the tail, different Precisely. from what you'd get? Uh, yeah. Exactly. I was taught this under the under the name bootstrapping. That is close. A permutation test is what it's called. And it's the same family of uh, resampling inference. 
And bootstrapping and permutation test, I, I love both of those. They're both sort of in my top five t- favorite tests. Like they're intuitive, they're easy to do, they're hard to fool, yeah. you know, really, really handy. Anyway, so, so the technique that I used in a nutshell picks different points in time and then uses a permutation test to compare rates of conflict initiation before and after those points. And it just throws CPU power at the problem. And it comes up with, you know, here are the points at which there was a statistically significant break or change in the underlying rate of conflict initiation. And some of those points I, I was struck by when, they, when I looked at the results of the analysis. Just looking at the graph was what made me think about international orders. Because one of the change points happened in the early 1850s, which is right around the time that the Concert of Europe disintegrated. Another one happened right at the end of the Cold War. And so mm. those were sort of big flags that, you know, <laughs> I, I think I know what happened yeah, in yeah. those years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 1989, you say? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's very reassuring when the statistical test that you, you haven't told it anything about World War II or the Cold War or any, anything, right. and, and it's picking out almost exactly these breakpoints that you might expect based on your guest out knowledge of international relations. Right, exactly. That was very reassuring. Yeah. Do these change point analyses and, and, and these kind of simulations that you're running to, to see how far away from a random distribution you are, do they face a multiple testing issue? Just to explain this. So let's imagine you've got the period from 1800 to 2000. You're basically trying to split it up into different periods. Right. Uh, and, and, you could, and you could choose any of these different years as breakpoints to establish, you know, you've got the period, say, uh, 1800 to 1850, uh, and then 1850 to 1920. Because those are two different periods. And then you've got a third one perhaps after that. It seems like, in theory, you have so many different options that you could test, so many different possible right. uh, breakpoints that it's a bit unclear, like, what should the threshold be, given that you've asked so many different questions? Right. <laughs> You're like, is there a breakpoint here? Is there a breakpoint there? Yeah. And this, this happens a lot in this literature. You get people sort of saying, you know, I, I want to run a test of, uh, you know, interstate wars and see if there's a change in this period or, you know, a change mm-hmm. at this point or a change at this point. Now let's add civil wars and see if there's a change at this point, a change at this point, you know, and run lots and lots mm-hmm. of tests. And then one of them comes up positive and you sort of declare victory. Yeah. Well, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think there was one, I'd have to look up the exact numbers, but I came across one that ran like 21 different configurations, I think, and found three mm-hmm. significant differences and said, hey, you know, we've, mm-hmm. you know, we've, uh, we found the answer. So that's definitely an issue in this literature. Within this test, it's taken into account okay. just by virtue of the way the test is constructed. I see. So, Because when you do the simulation to see whether there are changes, you're effectively doing exactly the same process, asking the same number of questions in that simulation as in the real uh, test. Right. Uh, and so it picks it up. Okay, that, that's, that's really good. What I'm doing is downloading a statistical package in R that was written by people mm-hmm. who are smarter than I am and who, <laughs> who, who knew how to create this <laughs> test in the first place. So Yeah. This is a slightly separate issue, but but while we're on these methodological questions, a a lot of people believe that rates of violent death before the rise of modern states and empires like, you know, the Persian Empire, the the Roman Empire and so on, that rates of violent death, you know, including homicide, that was far higher than than it is today. Mm -hmm. So now we're kind of talking about hunter-gatherers compared to, to the Roman Empire. How confident can we be about that claim that over that very long kind of time period, uh, rates of interpersonal violence have declined? So this one is a bit outside my area, but um, mm. but just based on looking at the evidence, it's really it strikes me as being really debatable. Mm. The archaeologists 
who have responded on this question have argued about things like, how do you know when someone's killed in battle versus just like buried with a spear next to them, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and they've, they've uh, talked about how you can get heated debates over, over that question. From my perspective, the key thing is that small groups naturally produce higher variation in outcomes than large groups. So, for example, if you ever take a look at um, a good example from from recent years is you look at maps of COVID prevalence by county. And probably everyone here has seen one of these maps where you see like, okay, there, you know, there's a lot in New York City, there's less in Philadelphia, that sort of thing. But what happens when you get to the western part of the country, right? When, when you look at the western part of the U.S., all of a sudden you get this incredible array of checkerboarded, you know, some, some are really high, some are really low. And that's because, mm. you know, some of those counties have 10 people in them. And if, if you know, if 10 people get COVID in that county, then, the, you know. 100%. Yeah. So it, what you see in those counties is more variation. Mm. People are always trying to read, uh, at least in my data visualization class, my students are always trying to read something meaningful into that pattern in the map data. You know, and say, oh, yeah. what is it about this county? Like, it's small. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what's going on. Let's just pause and emphasize this, because this is an incredibly important thing for people in the audience to have in mind when people make a very wide range of claims. A really interesting case where this shows up is that someone might say, if you look at rankings of schools uh, in terms of you know test performance or learning or, or any measure, any measure of quality, you'll very often find that the ones at the top are very small schools. Now, very natural interpretation is small schools are better. Maybe education is better provided at a boutique scale rather than an industrial scale. However, you absolutely have to check that the worst performing schools are not also small. Because, of course, when you have a tiny cohort, it's possible for them to knock it out of the park one year and then be absolutely garbage the next. Small schools and small anything are going to have far more higher variance, far more dispersed outcomes. Right. And you need to look at the full range rather than selecting on the dependent variable, or in this case, you know, selecting based on whether on high test results or low test results, because that is going to absolutely wreck your conclusion. And the application here is that, of course, pre-state societies, uh, hunter-gatherer groups were far smaller, mm-hmm. so it would be possible for them to have 10% of the population die in a conflict in a given year in a way that that's extremely difficult to happen in the United States, yes. uh, g- given its size today. Right. But doesn't that also mean that some of the most peaceful seeming societies, like uh, on average, it should be on average, it should cancel out and you have like both, both the most violent and the most uh, peaceful ones uh, will, will all be hunter-gatherer groups, basically. Yes. And this is actually where Pinker gets accused of cherry picking the data, right? Because mm. archaeologists have come up with a whole bunch of, you know, why didn't you talk about the Hopi, for example? Like, mm. why didn't you talk about these other groups that had incredibly low rates of, uh, of death by warfare? Again, this is not my area, but, um, but that's mm. part of the criticism. So the concern is that there's going to be very, very different uh, levels of violence between different hunter-gatherer groups, perhaps just by chance, or or maybe, you know, in different places, different culture, you could have one group that just has an extremely pacifistic uh, culture, uh, but maybe if you came back in 200 years, it would be different. And so you have to make sure that you're in no way selecting which ones to consider based on anything that in fact is correlated with with their violence rate. Right. So let me, I just want to back up to something you said a minute ago, which is like, you know, the rates can be very high, very low. We're talking about a phenomenon, death in warfare, that's relatively uncommon. And it's bounded at the bottom by zero. So mostly what you see in these data are uh, errors on the positive side. Right. Right. You, you, you see unusually 
lethal. It may be a lot more difficult to tell a relatively peaceful small society from from the others. But I, the, um, the way that I tried to illustrate this in the book, and it either sort of, you know, it gets a lot of laughs or it gets a lot of blank stares. So um, but we'll roll the dice here. Is uh, I, I took a look at um, CDC data on deaths by poisoning, and I broke it down by for U.S. states. I think in 2010, and I broke it down by state, right? Uh, West mm-hmm. Virginia, Kentucky, so on and so forth. And then I broke it down by county, right? Mm-hmm. And you see almost exactly the same pattern of lethality coming out of those data that you see coming out mm-hmm. of Pinker's state versus non-state society data. So you see, like, there's one county in West Virginia that, that has a terrible opioid problem. And, you know, people yeah. are dying by poisoning by the, in the droves. But you would not conclude on that basis mm-hmm. that living in a county is more dangerous than living in a state. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Since counties are nested yes. within states and, and most people do both. Everyone right? is in one of both. Yeah, right, right. Well, the, the Commonwealth people would disagree. They, they would say that, but you know, some of them are, are in Commonwealths rather than states. But anyway, but but that's the, that's the overall point that you just can't, um, you know, you have to account for the difference in size of the groups if, if you want to compare them. I got confused with this one a little bit because it seems like, assuming that all states and all counties had an equal population, then the average death rate in the counties has to be the same as the average death rate in the states, doesn't it? As long as you're considering all just exactly the same people. Yes. And yet it looked like the death rate was higher in the counties than in the average of the states. Yes. And I think that could only be explained if there was a correlation between population and the death rates from poisoning. No, no, it's just, I mean, it's just that, as you say, you get lots of, how can I put it, you just get more variation in the counties, right? They average out to something close. Okay. It's in the same way that, you know, you can have a group with people with extreme political views and on average it'll come out to be sort of moderate. You know, and you compare across groups and the variation within groups can be a lot bigger than the variation across groups. And that's what's implicitly being compared here. Right, right. But if you had a complete accounting, if you took all of the states and all of the counties and compared them on average, then you would have to say that the death rate was the same. Um Actually, no, no, not necessarily because of this issue with no. the correlation with the population. Sorry, yes, of course. Even if, you know, yeah, if you added up all of the counties within a state, then yes, you would have the number of deaths in that state, right? Mm-hmm. But um, essentially, this is analogous to what Pinker's doing because he's talking about very small non-state societies that then came mm-hmm. together into a larger, to form a larger state, right? Mm-hmm. So the reasonable comparison would be, you know, the death rate within all of those societies prior to the formation of the state to the to the death rate following the formation of the state, which is it's funny that, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. And it's funny that it kind of lit me up to the extent that it does, because I actually believe he's right that like states, <laughs> states make, you know, <laughs> states do decrease the odds that you're going to get killed. Right. That's part of their job, mm, you know, monopoly right. and the legitimate use of force from Weber. Right. So. He managed to get me disagreeing with him, even though I agree with the fundamental point. And it was all because I looked at the data and I thought, you can't say that. You know. the, the methodology is flawed, even if the conclusion is probably right. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so as, as we flagged, the two key measures of warlikeness that you talk about in the book are war initiation and then war escalation. And as, as, as both of them matter. They're kind of different measures of warlikeness. And, and plausibly, they could go in different directions. And that's one, one reason why we need to look at them separately. You could have a trend that wars start less often, but when they happen, they, they, they tend to escalate far more. So, so we'll consider them one by one. Uh, let's do initiation first. Yeah, how do you define what war initiation exactly? It depends on the data set, right? Um, for, for the war data set, you don't even count the war at all until it reaches a threshold of a thousand battle deaths, right? So you have to have been fighting a war for a while for that to count as a war. And um, mm. I'm not sure whether this is true, but University of Michigan lore has it that when the people who founded the Correlates of War Project wanted to figure out where to draw the line, they just did a histogram and they saw a big gap around a thousand. And they looked at the wars that were sort of on the low side of that and they said, I don't really think these count as wars. You know, they, they're not what I would call a war. And then the, the ones above that did. And so they thought, eh, thousand looks about right. Sounds like a data artifact. Sounds like a coding issue. <laughs> well, but it's also, it's also being in touch yeah. with your data and not being bound by a priori theoretical commitments. But anyway, yeah. that, so that's where the thousand battle does, I believe, comes from. I think you, you, can, you kind of test that threshold and find it doesn't really make much difference one way right, or the other. Right. Well, what's funny is for a while, the Falklands War was at like, I don't know, 980 or something like that. And that was just a magnet of yeah. criticism, you know, for the cow project. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I don't know if they, re- they recounted, but now magically it's at a thousand battles. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just need, God, that, yeah. is, uh, that is grim. <laughs> I will make the joke with that. You know, we got to find right, 20 more. Right, deaths. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Come on, let's. <laughs> Keep looking through records. So, right, so that's the war data. The militarized interstate dispute data looks at threats, displays, or uses of force. I only look at uses of force, which is a you know smaller subset, and that I think is the threshold that we're most interested in. Right now, I published. I didn't publish. I presented an early draft of this paper at a conference, and it got written up in a couple of uh, in a couple of places, and one reporter called Pinker and sent him the paper and said, what do you think? And he said, well, he uses militarized interstate disputes. And the problem with that is that a militarized interstate dispute doesn't necessarily contain the threat of escalation. It may be that there's no chance, no realistic chance it's going to escalate to a war. It could just be the U.S. with a warship floating off the coast of some country lobbing missiles into the interior and they can never respond. You know, I saw that response and I thought... That's fair. I mean, you know, the argument, the reason for using militarized disputes is that there are more of them and they at least potentially contain the seeds of war, right? They're wars that just didn't Mm. didn't escalate. So I actually changed my coding rule at that point to look at only reciprocated uses of force because I thought that, to to Mm. my mind, that's Mm. the best way that I can think of to argue that this had the potential to blow up into an actual war. So I deviate from the, yeah. from the mid-coding for that reason because, uh, you know, Pinker criticized what I was doing. And I thought, actually, that's a pretty good, yeah. yeah. Helpful. Well, well taken. Yeah. So to define a rate of initiation, you both have to say, you know, what, what is a, a, a war? And then you also need to know how many opportunities for war there were. And for this, so as we've talked about earlier, you, you've got this setup where the, the correlates of war says how many states are in Correct. the interstate system. 
In the early period, uh, around 1816, as I understand, there's only like 20-something states, and they're almost all in Europe within this data set. And gradually, it expands towards in the 1920s, I think it has something more like the number of countries that a person might intuitively uh, think exist. And you also want relevant, here we use dyads, which is basically you know, two, states, two yeah. states. Uh, I suppose a dyad would be like two people talking. And in this case, two states that might, that, that might be able to, to fight one another. For global powers like the US or China today, you're, you're saying that they could plausibly go to war with anyone because they just have the, have the reach to do that. For non-great powers, you have a measure of kind of a physical distance across land and across sea. So, so anyone you border with, you could go to war and anyone who you can like reasonably get to from some distance uh, with, with your Navy, uh, then, they could, then they could also go to war. But uh, you don't think it's uh, plausible that you know, Paraguay might go to war with, with Myanmar. That's excluded. Oh, that, that's, that, that wasn't a realistic opportunity for war to break out in that year. So what you've just described is sort of the standard way of coding what are called politically relevant dyads. I do uh, define opportunities in that way as kind of a robustness check. But the main definition that I use, it's similar in that, you know, the major powers can reach just about anywhere. But the difference is that it's a continuous measure. And it's estimated from the data rather than assumed, right? So if you're a smaller state, your immediate neighbors might be, you know, in your politically relevant neighborhood, as well as potentially, mm. you know, a country that's a thousand miles offshore. As, as you get stronger, the radius of politically relevant dyads increases. As you get weaker, it shrinks. This was a measure that a co-author and I came up with in a separate paper. And what I was thinking about, you know, how do I define uh, politically relevant dyads? I just looked to see if it did a better job of separating wars from non-wars, right? One of the criticisms of politically relevant diets is that a fair number of conflicts occur between theoretically non-relevant states. And our measure does a considerably better job of, uh, of capturing those conflicts. Okay. So that was the measure that I used in, for, for opportunities. Excellent. So in the book, you consider a whole lot of variations in the specifications and different kinds of tests that one could run to see how rates of war initiation have shifted over time. If I recall correctly, I think some of those changes do affect the interpretation that you might make. So to some extent, the answer to this question is going to have to be a simplification relative to, to the full amount of content that's in the book. But yeah, what are the patterns in war initiation from 1815 through roughly today? Well, the patterns in war initiation are very are difficult to tease out. And I think for, for that reason... I put a lot more faith in the patterns in militarized dispute initiation just because there are more data. Mm. Like it's a more granular test, so you can actually, mm. you know, you can actually see. And, and is the issue there just that uh, because it's a lower threshold, there's a larger yes. sample? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you don't see you don't see a downward trend in either one in general across the mm. last couple hundred years, even accounting for noise. Right, which is uh, Pinker's pretty clear that you know there's there's going to be statistical noise, and that's why we're running these tests. Right, the militarized interstate dispute data show a gradual increase in the rate of conflict initiation over a couple of centuries. You know, we've talked about the data set and inclusion rules and why there maybe may not be reasons to take that completely literally. Right, it excludes other countries that uh, that might have been fighting at the time, but you're very hard pressed to to believe that there was a, a decline over that time. There was, however, at the end of the Cold War, a drop in the global rate of conflict initiation of more than 50%, which is, for someone who studies conflict, this is enormous, right? We're used to trying to find causes that 
produce like, I don't know, a 5% change in the probability of conflict initiation between some dyads. To find a 50% decrease in the rate of conflict initiation across the system, the, the entire international system, it's sort of like going out uh, fishing and catching a whale. You know, it's, it's an enormous, so it is a substantively huge drop. But that's the only point at which you can sort of point to the data and say, yeah, I, I do see a drop in, in conflict. Okay. So that's a, that's a clear uh, breakpoint, which, which makes a whole ton of sense. What are some other plausible breakpoints uh, that, that show up sometimes, but maybe not, not every time? Well, um, depending on the uh, exact formulation, sometimes you'll see an increase in conflict in the, in the 1860s which makes sense because that was the period between the concert of Europe and the Bismarckian system, right? And then a slight drop after that. Sometimes you see kind of a, you know, a step down after the very early Cold War period where, and it's right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, this sort of makes sense in terms of what you see substantively in terms of global patterns, Right that the U.S. and the Soviets, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, really start to become much more cautious about saber-rattling and, you know, they initiate arms control agreements and so on and so forth. So in some formulations, you can see those breakpoints as well. Right. That makes sense. One thing that just occurred to me is that I think in all of the statistical tests here, as I understand it, the null hypothesis, so the thing that you're comparing your theory of it having changed with, is that war initiation is a stationary process, which is to say that any relevant dyad has an equal probability of initiating a war in any given year. No, no, no. Aggregated across the international system, the rate of conflict initiation equals out. Hmm. So there may, you know, in, in one year, the okay. countries starting with the letter A might go to war a lot. And in another year, the countries starting with the letter B might go to war a lot, right? Okay. You're looking at at the aggregate level, the total number of conflicts in a year. Okay. Yeah. yeah sorry. That's what I meant to say, but not what I, what I did say. But wouldn't it be very natural to think that wars cause more wars? And so from a, I think the technical term for this would be that wars are autocorrelated. Mm -hmm. So it is to say, if you have lots of wars started in 1940, then that conflict might cause more wars to start in 1941. And so that would lead to even more clustering than you might expect from just the illusory clustering of wars. That, that might cause wars to, to actually cluster rather than merely have the illusion of clustering. Right, right, right. And, and you definitely see that in the dyadic data. Right. I mean, you, you definitely see uh, what you're calling autocorrelation is uh, how a statistician would describe it. The conflict studies, people call it war contagion or war spreads uh, across borders. But mm. that's definitely a phenomenon that happens in some wars, not most uh, militarized disputes, but some. Yeah. Is it a problem that the statistical models are not considering that? I suppose for long term trends, it doesn't really affect it. That, that's going to cancel out pretty clearly. But I suppose it, it, it could cause it perhaps to see more breakpoints than really exist because you might have a sudden, uh, in reality, you have a you know clustering of lots of war initiations right around uh, World War II. And that might be because of the contagion effect rather than a more underlying change. This gets into some complicated weeds. But uh, the problem arises from the fact mm -hmm. that the observations are not independent of one another, right? And most statistical tests assume that they are independent of one another. Mm. Um, so you shouldn't, now I, sh I should say that goes for peace as well as war. You, you could argue that the fact that, you know, the yeah, U S and the UK right. were not at war in, you know, 18, 
94 is not independent of the fact that they were not at war in 1893, right? So it, it, it cuts both ways. And the impact in the aggregate is sort of difficult to figure out. The way to deal with that is to talk to the network science people uh, because they're very good. One of the things that they fundamentally work on, um, and I'm, I'm not part of that. I do a little bit of it, but not, not very much. One of the things that they're really good at is modeling and accounting for the lack of independence of observations. So there are, there are ways to deal with, but you're right, like a naive statistical test that's doing something yeah. more than just looking at trends would have a hard time dealing with it. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that occurs to me is that, so I'm approaching this, the main thing that I want to know is how worried should I be about a great power conflict or how worried should I be about a massive war, you know, over the next hundred years, or particularly during, during my lifetime. And for that purpose, perhaps I don't care about the rate of war initiation per relevant pair of states. I might just care about the absolute number of wars initiated because a world with you know, a, lo- a lower rate of war per state, but way more states might create more wars in total, any of which then could perhaps draw in others and escalate and become a massive problem. Yeah. Do you know how the absolute number of wars starting has shifted over time? Yes. So... Um... I mentioned earlier that um, the Correlates of War Project has data on extra-state wars and non-state wars, right? Extra-state wars being a war between a state and some non-state entity like a colony and non-state wars being, you know, wars among Mm. non-state entities. And uh, at one point in the book, uh, I just sort of aggregated all of those wars together. And I said, you know, I can't look at the rate because, like I said, I don't know what the denominator is. But you can look at just the absolute count of wars Hmm. of all three types when you add them up together over time. And I threw that into the change point detection algorithm, and it resolutely refused to find any change points at all. I see. It just said, no matter matter how you tweak the parameters on this test, you're getting a flat line, you know, over over 200 years. Wow. Okay. That's really helpful to know. Uh, and it perhaps deals with it. Yeah, maybe one of my big concerns with this, the largest concern that I've encountered with it is that the interstate data, it's it, to some extent because of who's included as a, who's counted as a state in the very early periods. Yeah. To, to some extent, you're comparing the rate of wars in Europe in, in the 19th century with the rates of wars breaking out in the entire world in the 20th century. Right. Now, I'm actually not sure which way that biases things, but uh, it's, it's, not, it's not ideally what we would like to be doing. But if we, just, if we actually have managed to count all of these deadly quarrels uh, according to proper standards across the entire world right. over the time period, then the absolute number we can see if there's a change and there is not. Right, that's right. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Okay, Turning now to the, an alternative measure of the risk of war, escalation, how do you measure the escalatory propensity of wars in different, in different time periods? Uh, well, there's a simple answer and a complicated answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe let's do a simple the one. The <laughs> simple one is that you make a graph where you line up the wars in order of deadliness, and then you take the logarithm of deadliness, and what you get is a straight line. And you do that for two sets of wars— and then you compare the steepness of the two lines. I see. And I, I realize a lot of people aren't going to have this graph readily. In it, but if you imagine, you know, the, the probability of a conflict on the y-axis going from one at the top toward, toward zero at the bottom. And then the lethality of the conflict on the x-axis 
both of them on a log scale. So a thousand battle deaths, 10,000 battle deaths, a hundred thousand battle deaths, you know, so on and so forth. Hmm. The relationship between those two things looks like a downward sloping line. So bigger wars are less common. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But the. I want to know how much less common are they? But they become less common in an extremely linear way in log log space, which is sort of the, the signature of a power law relationship. Mm-hmm. It's also characteristic of other distributions, but that's what people look for for a power law distribution. So the idea yeah. is you, you plot two sets of wars side by side, and the one that has the shallower line sort of goes farther out on the x-axis at the same level of probability. So Hmm. that set of wars with the shallower line have more escalatory propensity. Hmm. So um, a a friend of mine, a colleague, Lars-Erik Sederman, who's at ETH in Zurich, he wrote an article a while ago going back hundreds of years, six, seven hundred years, and uh, looking at a data set of lethality of major power wars. And he finds that after the Napoleonic Wars, wars actually got deadlier. And he attributes that to... More escalatory? Yes, yes. He attributes that to um, the levee en masse, which instead of having small professional armies on the field, all of a sudden you have mass armies. Other historians have attributed it to the railroad, right, which allows you to move logistics very quickly and troops very quickly from one place to another and mass large numbers of people in ways that you hadn't before. Could very well be both, I'm not sure. But the main evidence for this is, you know, a plot that he has of pre-Napoleonic wars and post-Napoleonic wars. And it's very clear that the post-Napoleonic wars are more escalatory. So basically what I did was look for changes within the post-Napoleonic period to see whether there was any Mm. point at which wars got more or less lethal. And I didn't find any. So that made, that made sense to me, but I, I have the benefit right. of reading the of reading the book and having 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 looked at all the graphs. So I'm going to try to put this into uh, terms without using term power law <laughs> sure. or, or log log, uh, especially because may, many listeners won't be that familiar with with, with logarithms and, and and so on. So if we think, what is the escalatory propensity of war? In in this case, we're going to define it as basically the likelihood that a war that kills ten thousand people goes on to kill 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. The probability that a war keeps getting bigger by some fixed factor. So uh, going from 10,000 to 100,000 is a tenfold increase and then 100,000 to a million, that's another tenfold increase. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, the deadliness of wars, if you you look at a whole bunch of wars over some time period, the probability of a war going from 1,000 deaths to 10,000 deaths is about the same as the probability of it going from 100,000 deaths to a million deaths. Yes. That ratio is uh, roughly constant, or, or these, and, and that means for those who do understand logarithms, that if you graph the logarithm of deaths as against the logarithm of the number of uh, wars uh, that they, they, right. they get to that point, uh, then you get a straight line. Now, we want to see if, has the escalatory propensity yes. changed. So we need to say, what about all of the wars between eighteen hundred and nineteen hundred, or in all of the wars between nineteen hundred and two thousand? Is the probability of the war going from ten thousand deaths to hundred thousand deaths? in the first group different right. than in the second group. You know, everything else that we're saying is kind of fancier versions of that yep. basic idea. Uh, and, and there we talk about, uh, in, in that case, on the graph, whether you have the log against the log, that corresponds to the slope mm-hmm. uh, changing, basically. Okay, fantastic. Another way that I think of it is, you know, you break wars up into two groups. And in one of them, you find that uh, 10% of the wars cause 90% of the deaths, Right. 
And in another, mm. you find that 5% of the wars cost 95% of the deaths, mm. right? Mm. In that second group, you would say that war is more escalatory because the wars that get big mm. get really, really, really big. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. Why do you think wars follow a power law like this? So they have a constant probability of getting 10 times larger rather than, you know, a natural thing to think, I guess, would be that they run out of escalatory steam as they get bigger, that as the war gets bigger, people get more reluctant for it to expand or just it runs out right. of people to kill, for heaven's sake. But it, <laughs> but we don't kind of see that. No, you don't. And, uh, and that's one of the questions that I'm in Oslo to try to answer, actually. We don't really have a compelling answer to that question. We have some hunches. I look at a process uh, that's called the two-sided gambler's ruin. And the, the analogy is something like this. You and I start out at the 50-yard line of a football field, an American football field. We flip mm. a coin. Mm. If it's heads, we move one yard toward your goal line. If it's sails, we move one yard toward my goal line. And uh, regardless of which way we go, we each burn a dollar, right? Yeah. How long does it take you to get to one goal line or the other? And it turns out that uh, if you if you simulate that thousands and thousands of times, you get a power law distribution. Hmm. Most of the time, you get to the one goal line or the other fairly soon, but there are some cases where you just get a hurting stalemate in the middle forever. And just yeah, for and very, so if you think about time. World War One, for example, right? That's that's very much what happened, right? They were just sort of back and forth across the fifty yard line while people were just bleeding away one after another. So, um, mm. so that's one model of, of how it is that, uh, that wars produce power laws. Uh, I was just talking with a, another person who's done a lot of interesting research on conflict, and, you know, on the, the uh, decline of war thesis, uh, Aaron Clausett. He was also mm. invited here to, uh, to Oslo, and he and I are sharing an office, so we've had a chance to talk a bit about these sorts of things. His take, along with his mm. co-author, Christian Gledich, is that in individual battles— Forces are fairly evenly met, and so they tend to cancel out. And so the only time you see like a, a spike okay. in war fatalities are like chance events. And so that process could also produce a power law. Now, the argument that you made about, you know, you sort of run out of steam, what they're finding, at least in a preliminary way, is that that does happen in civil wars. That um, civil wars tend to sort of, you know, taper off rather than continue in a strong power law way. But uh, interstate wars, states have more resources to bring to bear. You can always bring more states into the, you know, into the fight, that sort of thing. Okay, so what have been the trends in war escalation since 1815? I have found none. <laughs> Zero, zip, zilch. No, no matter how, it doesn't no matter, matter how you measure it. What, it doesn't matter what test you're on, doesn't matter what breaks you consider. I yeah. threw test after test at measure after measure, and I just found nothing. I, I did a preliminary test where I looked for looked for breakpoints. As a matter of fact, now that I think of it, that test did take into account multiple testing problem. That one I coded myself, and I had I made sure to do it that way. Yeah. Um, I'm so thrilled. I'm just thrilled that you asked me about that because nobody ever nobody ever asked about that. Like people will run a hundred <laughs> tests on a data set, and they'll find you know one one significant result. And yeah. Just be like, look, yeah, that no. You, you can tell that this is a very unusual podcast that absolutely does not have to turn a profit. Right. <laughs> That's why we can ask a question. Exactly. We make, a, we make an epic loss as a nonprofit, but sorry, go on. But anyway, so, so, you know, even taking that into account, I just wasn't able to find anything. Now, interestingly, the people who put me on the grant that brought me here, 
who offered me the chance to to be a part of this, mm. they've published a paper yeah. in which they argue that there is a slight decline in the lethality of war after Korea. Mm. And I, I think we can mm. get into the differences between those two. It's it's actually fairly complicated. But but I think it's really a credit to them that they invited me and, and invited Aaron, who found the same thing. Aaron and I used completely different mm. methodologies and came to almost exactly the same answer, which is, you know, which is delightful. So it's going to be a really neat year. I think we're going to have a chance to... To try to get on the same page. Yeah. So, so you have to have a whole bunch of different conflicts in order to establish the slope the, es- the escalatory potential which comes from the slope. And so it's actually, it takes a lot of data to measure. And so does that mean that maybe it's actually, even if there were a change in the escalatory potential, the underlying escalatory nature of war, it could be quite hard to pick up because you just wouldn't have enough wars to be able to get a statistically significant difference. Yeah, no, that is, I mean, okay. we're looking <laughs> at under 100 conflicts, right? And you're dividing those into, or 100 wars, and you're mm-hmm. dividing those into two sets, Right. So you can actually mm-hmm. get consistent measures of the slope, even with a small number of observations. The problem is that your uncertainty, as one of those groups yeah. gets smaller, your uncertainty gets bigger and bigger. But I think what I'd say to that point is that if you take a look at the mm-hmm. slopes of the, in the relationships that I found, they're shockingly close. So even if we had 10 times as many wars, we wouldn't find a significant difference. Yeah realizing that even yeah. if there were a difference, we can't tell uh, right. is itself a really important finding because, you know, of, of what we cannot know, we should not speak. And so it would definitely, there's a lot of things that then you can't say, which is yeah. it's going up, it's going down, it's staying the same, we just don't know. Okay, I've got some quite technical questions here that were sent in by an extremely smart and informed uh, audience member. And yeah, fascinated to hear what, uh, what, you, what you had to say about them. Sure. Oh, so, yeah, I'm super curious to, to hear the response. The first one here is going to take a minute to read, but I think it's a good one. This one is very in the weeds, but I was very confused about some conflicting results Pinker and Braumoller get in testing for the hypothesis of a break in war incidents after 1945. Pinker writes, taking the frequency of wars between great powers from 1495 to 1945 as a baseline, the chance that there would be a 65-year stretch with only a single great power war, the marginal case of the Korean War, is one in a thousand. Even if we take 1815 as our starting point, which biases the test against us by letting the peaceful post-Napoleonic 19th century dominate the base rate, we find that the probability that the post-war era would have at most... Sorry, this is a quote from Pinker, to be clear. Oh, I know, yeah. We find that the probability that the post-war era would have at most four wars involving a great power is less than 0.4%. And the probability that it would have at most one war between European states, that is the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, is 0.08%. Sorry, now, now, now the audience member again. Braumoller gets different results by modeling the onset of great power war in a given year as a binomial distribution with P equals 0.02 based on the rate of great power war over the last five centuries. Quote, the probability of observing seven continuous decades of peace is 24.3%. He also writes, it would still take about 150 years of uninterrupted peace for us to reject conclusively the claim that the underlying probability of systemic war remains unchanged, end quote. Both Pinker and Braumoller are relying primarily on Levy's war in the modern great power system to estimate the rate of great power war. So I don't understand why they're getting such radically different results. Uh, what, what's going on? Well, what's going on, first of all, is you have a, a phenomenally interesting audience. That really is in the weeds, and it's a, it's a neat question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the answer is actually fairly simple. Yeah. So sometimes when Pinker's writing about great power wars, he's talking about wars involving a single great power. And Levy does measure those. 
Sometimes uh, he writes about wars that involve most great powers. That goes by the name of a systemic war, mm. right? And, and Levy codes those as well. Mm. So this discussion was in the context of John Lewis Gaddis's discussion of the long peace after World War II. And Gaddis's observation was mm. that it's really striking that we haven't had a World War III, given that systemic wars have actually been fairly common up to this point. Mm. So at different points in the book, Pinker mm. writes about wars involving a single great power or wars involving most great powers. This quote is from a section where he's talking about wars involving a single great power. Since the context was the discussion of the long peace, I thought the appropriate test would be how often have we had systemic wars. So we're actually looking at subtly different things. Mm. And, uh, and that explains the, the difference in the finding. I see. What's funny, I, just as a quick footnote, I, I mentioned that Aaron Clausett and I had come to similar findings by different means. One of the things I loved when I first read Aaron's paper, he was using a completely different test, uh, looking, just looking at things in a totally different way. Mm. And at one point he says, we would have to have another, you know, we'd have to go 150 years before we could conclusively say that there's been a change. And I thought the fact that we, we not only got the same finding, we came up with the same number yeah. uh, really is reassuring. Yeah, yeah. It's a complete uh, data replication. Is the fact that asking... Subtly, I guess, well, I guess to people in this field, these might seem like very different questions. I suppose to me, as someone who's not an expert in this field, these both seem like kind of relevant questions that one might mm -hmm. ask, and yet they produce some radically different conclusions. Yeah, what, what should I take away from that? If you look in the post-World War II period, you do find fewer wars involving great powers on great powers, right? Part of the reason is that the considerable majority of the great powers were part of an alliance. I see. I do think it's an interesting thing to look at, but I think it's very difficult to know what to say about the results. Whereas I think if you're looking at big systemic wars, right, like World War I and World War II and the Napoleonic Wars, mm -hmm. I mean, these big sort of huge catastrophic wars that happen on average about once every 50 years, right, then it's a little bit easier analytically to ask the question, how unusual is it that we haven't seen one since World War II? Not, not shocking, right? And the answer is, it's, I mean, it's a little surprising, but it's not shocking. It's not to the point where we can say there's been a fundamental change. Okay, well, we're going to push on. I should say there's another chapter where you consider another measure of warlikeness, which is the prevalence of different potential sparks for war. So different uh, different kinds of uh, causes of war. So you could have, say, how many territorial disputes are there active at any given point in time. Basically, in brief, you find that there's many different uh, reasons that countries fight. And some of them are becoming more common in time, uh, over time and some of them are becoming less common over time. And there doesn't seem to be any great trend there. So it's very hard to say very much about whether the uh, kind of sparks for war are, are increasing in, in prevalence or decreasing. Right. It really just seems like a total mess. But okay, to wrap up this data analysis section... How can we aggregate all of the uh, above trends to give a sense of how grave the risk of war is overall? <laughs> how worried we should be? So it's sort of a mixed answer. Mm. Like I said, interstate war initiation has gotten far less common since the end of the Cold War, which is great news. And, you know, if you're, if you're from the perspective of, like, making the world a better place, we need to understand that better. Mm. This is basically the whole reason that I formed a research lab. So we're, we're doing things like 
coming up with measures of order and figuring out the logic of the relationship between order and war and uh, how it is the tensions between domestic political order and international order play out. And um, we're even looking at um, Chinese understandings of international order to see what kind of traction we can get on that. So I think um, one takeaway is we do sometimes see a big drop in the rate of conflict initiation that I absolutely believe in, and we need to understand what happened there. A second takeaway is that the lethality of war, like I said, no matter what I threw at it, just stubbornly refused to, Mm. to, to give me the answer that war is increasing or decreasing. So, you know, people think that if a war starts now, it's uh, less likely to escalate into a, an incredibly bloody conflagration than it was in 1939 or 1913, yeah. and there's no evidence to support that conclusion. The final thing I'd say is that wars are so incredibly escalatory mm. that we should really be worried about them. And the analogy that I use is it's, it's sort of like if you imagine I have a deck of cards Right, 96 cards. <laughs> and, and the most common card has a thousand battle deaths. But one of those cards is World War I and one of those cards is World War II. <laughs> How worried should you be about drawing a card from that deck? Right? You could say, well, most of them are a thousand battle deaths, so I shouldn't be too worried. Right? But at the same time, yeah. you know, World War I and World War II are in there. And if the deck hasn't changed, We really need to be thoughtful about when it is we're going to draw another card. Okay. If we came back in 10 or 20 years, and by then you decided that the bottom lines in, or at least some of the bottom lines in Only the Dead had turned out to be more wrong than right. Yeah. What would be the most likely reason for the analysis to have drawn some mistaken conclusions? So I can imagine two reasons. One reason would be the the statistical tests, right? It's just very difficult to do statistical tests on, you know, on some of the data that I'm looking at. Mm. And uh, as a result, the um, as I said, Aaron and I got the same result, Nassim Taleb and I got the same result, all using different tests, which is really encouraging to me. Nils Hjort, who mm. uh, invited me here, thinks we're using the wrong statistical tests and he's a statistician. <laughs> now, we're sort of united in disagreeing in that, you know, we, we think about how you design a statistical test in different ways. So I'm not currently convinced, but it's possible by the time I get done with this year that I will be. So that would be one reason that I could say, you know, okay, there was something about, maybe we would come up with a statistical test that Mm. that is based on a more nuanced understanding of why war happens that would give a different result. Yeah. That's very possible. Another possibility would be data. As we've mentioned, there's a controversy over the coverage of the cow data in the early 1800s. Mm. Um, increasingly, you know, it uh, arguably omits states that belong in the inter- interstate system, in particular non-European states. You know, one of the points that's been raised, you know, that leaves out wars that happened. It also leaves out opportunities for war. Yeah. Right. So I don't actually know what the yeah, net right. result would be if you included the, to, to find out, I'd actually have to have the data. Um, you know, so, so that said, the rate of conflict initiation outside the current system would have to be pretty big for there to be a decline over time. I see. Yeah. So, so you're saying, let's say that we got much better coverage of non-European states uh, in some time period. 
It's possible that that could then make it look like wars declined or increased. But I suppose given that you already have a meaningful fraction of the data in the in the current data set, those states would have to be following a pretty different trend uh, for it to shift the the overall uh, trend for everyone. Right. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, I guess the point I'm making is people point out that there are wars outside the European system uh, during this period. They're absolutely right. Mm. But what they don't do is take into account the number of opportunities for war. So if you include colonial wars, there are a fair number of colonial wars. There are a huge number of opportunities for war. So you could actually theoretically drive down the rate of conflict in Asian in, in the 1800s by including, I just don't know one way or the yeah. other. But, but to get it up to the level of the Cold War would require a huge lift. I see. Just out of curiosity, where would, say, the wars of independence fought in Latin America against Spain go? Do, do they count as civil wars in this data set? No, actually, I think they count as interstate wars. They tended to happen a little later in the 1800s, though. Okay, yeah, so they so they get counted. Yeah. Nice. Okay, I get, yeah, are there any other issues? I, I guess that, that those are the main ones, right? No, that was, I was going to say, the main, I, I want to be clear that what I tried to do in this book was give the best possible answer you can give hmm. based on the data. Hmm. I recognize that there are a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty over, you know, which data to use and how to code the data and so on and so forth. And as you saw, I tried to be pretty exhaustive mm. and you know, look at all possibilities. Yeah, and yeah. What's, what's striking to me is how hard it is to find causes for optimism mm. across all those tests, across all those specifications. It's extremely difficult to find reason to believe that over the past couple hundred years, we've seen any kind of secular decline in conflict. Um, yeah. I do believe in like the end of the Cold War was a big decline, and that's really cool and really interesting. Hmm. The broader thesis about sort of a longer-term decline is very difficult to support. Yeah, okay. So I, I really appreciate you being willing to dive so deep into the details with me there. Uh, I hope the audience found all that pretty inst uh, instructive and at least people hopefully appropriately calibrated about how confident to be about various different ideas, uh, appreciating both the, uh, the the strengths of the work and the weaknesses that ideally uh, you, you might hope to improve with, with, with future research. Um, it's almost 11 p.m. for you over there in Norway, so we should uh, eventually take mercy uh, and, and let you go home. Uh, normally, we try to end the show with a more lighthearted question. Uh, I'm not sure that we could uh, truly call this a lighthearted question, uh, but what's a war few listeners will have heard of that is astonishing in one way or another, or, or that uh, maybe for, for, what, for one reason or another, people should definitely go and read the Wikipedia article about? You know, it's funny. When you, when you think of wars, you tend to think of the big wars that everybody knows but there are a lot of smaller wars that just in some way or another are so odd and quirky mm. that they, um, you know, they surprise you. And in some ways they sort of restore your faith in people as, you know, just, or your curiosity about people. Mm. The soccer war is one good example. I don't know about that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm so, curious. so it's uh, it was between El Salvador and Honduras in 1969 Really, the issues at stake were things like land reform and immigration issues. So there were already tensions between El Salvador and Honduras. But uh, what sparked the war was mistreatment of one another's fans during soccer games. Mm. And so that became like a, you know, the soccer games spawned a crisis, the crisis spawned a war. You know, it was a spark in a powder keg, yeah. right? So the powder keg already existed, but the thing that set it off was... was um, soccer war. The, the pig war is another one that mm. most people have never heard of, in part because there were no, it, the, the only fatality was the pig. 
Um, okay. but, <laughs> but it was the U.S. and the U.K. in the 1850s. Uh, it was a border dispute that was dormant until an American farmer shot an Irish farmer's pig. And then both sides mobilized and, you know, they managed not to go to war. Uh, I think wow. my favorite, though, is, is the War of Jenkins' Ear. And you cannot hear a name like the War of <laughs> Jenkins' Ear and not go to Wikipedia and say, what the hell happened? Like, where did this come from? Yeah. And the answer is there was a British captain, a sea captain named Robert Jenkins, who was caught by the Spanish Coast Guard in the, in the Caribbean. And they accused him of piracy, and they were probably right. And they cut his ear off. And uh, I think it was, it was almost a decade later that British trade interests were kind of uh, lobbying for war against Spain. Mm. And as part of that lobbying, they paraded the, uh, the earless Jenkins in front of Parliament. <laughs> and uh, Parliament was, you know, shocked and outraged that, uh, that Spain had cut this guy's ear off 10 years ago or whatever. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that became part of the justification. And, um, and that's how Jenkins ended up being, you know, Jenkins' ear ended up being immortalized in a war. So those are always the wars that I find you know, fascinating for purely sort of storytelling reasons, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, well, I will stick up links to Wikipedia articles on, on all of those wars and, uh, and and a couple of other ones that uh, are shocking to me. I guess the war between an alliance of Argentina, Uruguay and Brazil against Paraguay is an oh, unbelievable story. And then the, then the Chaco oh, yeah. war, uh, the war between Paraguay and Bolivia over a place where they thought that there was oil. <laughs> and I think, yes. I don't know that they've made almost any oil, uh, gotten almost any oil out of there, uh, but they did manage to lose a shocking fraction of their populations. They found oil like two years ago or something. But yeah, those two wars are actually, in per capita terms, the deadliest in the last two centuries. Yeah. I mean, deadlier even than World War One and World War Two, And it's just, it's amazing. So those are great stories. And uh, the, the Paraguayan president who, you know, led his people to the, the horrendous defeat in the Paraguayan War mm. is now immortalized in a statue and he's on the money. And I mean, it's, a, it's also, you're right, it's a terrific story. It's very interesting. Yeah. But spectacularly deadly wars. My guest today has been Bear Brownmuller. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Bear. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. If you liked that episode, I think it's very likely that you'll enjoy two other episodes from this year. Uh, that is episode 128, Chris Blattman on the five reasons wars happen, and episode 134, Ian Morris on what big picture history teaches us. I'd also like to plug the fact that our job board has just gotten a pretty big update. Uh, you can now find it at jobs.80,000hours.org. With the update, it now has better filters to help you narrow down on roles that are suitable to you in terms of their location, uh, skill type, and seniority. Uh, and you can also search for uh, now for now for specific uh, terms that are within the job descriptions themselves. Uh, but really, the biggest improvement is that you can now set up email alerts to be told uh, right away about new roles that meet uh, your specific job search requirements. So uh, let's say that hypothetically, you are looking for an early to mid-career role uh, related to pandemic preparedness. Uh, in either London, uh, Washington, D.C., or the San Francisco Bay Area, because those are the cities that you'd be willing to move to. So you can go to the job board now at jobs.80,000hours.org, uh, select those filters to see what roles of that kind are currently available. Uh, and then, uh, I guess if you haven't found your perfect job already, uh, then click the Set Up Alerts button uh, and put in your email. And now, uh, if any jobs ever come up that meet those requirements, uh, we'll email you to let you know about them as soon as they go up on the job board. Uh, so this way, you can't accidentally miss any or find out about them uh, too late to have time to reply. Uh, 
Uh, of course, you can do that for any combination you like of problem area, uh, location, skill type, or uh, organization, uh, and so on. This is a really, uh, really cool feature. Uh, so yeah, and nice work to all of the people who've been involved in this update, uh, which I think is Kush Kansagra, uh, Victor Yanenko, and Maria Beckley, and Connor Barnes. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site, as always, and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.